Hello, and welcome to episode 68 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me for the second week in a row is my girlfriend, Dana Nyland. Welcome back, Dana. How's it going? Going good. Um, Today is Halloween, thematically, that we are recording, and um, it's a little bit snowy in Boston, so uh, that's what we get for living here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It snowed like crazy on October 30th, which I think might be the earliest that I've ever seen snow. So um, we're bundled up and ready to talk about a bunch of movies that we marathoned. Uh, Dana, you were just on the podcast last week, which means you might be the first guest in the history of this podcast to join on back-to-back episodes. Yeah, congratulations. I think maybe Ian did at some point and definitely when like we were doing recurring things, of Mm -hmm. course, but I think since then you might be the first. Um, last week, we reviewed and talked at length about the first four Harry Potter films as part one of our Halloween Harry Potter marathon. So this week, of course, is the second part of that conversation, where we'll talk about the final four Harry Potter films. Uh, those are Order of the Phoenix, The Half-Blood Prince, and The Deathly Hollows part one and part two. If you haven't listened to that first episode, definitely go back and listen. I thought it was a ton of fun. You obviously don't have to listen to that episode to enjoy this one. But, you know, check it out. We talk all about the wizarding world in detail, which we probably won't talk too much about in this episode. So definitely check that out for all sorts of nitpicks and critiques <laughs> on the, the minutia of the wizarding world. In any case, the structure of this episode will be exactly the same as last week. We'll go through each film chronologically, talking about overall thoughts, favorite lines, nitpicks, all that sort of stuff. And with that, all of our conversations will be spoiler filled. So this is your one and only spoiler warning for the entire Harry Potter series. And then at the end, we'll just finish it all up by ranking all eight films from worst to best. So that should be fun. So let's go ahead and just get started right away by talking about the fifth film, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. There's a storm coming, Harry. Just like last time. Magic is pleased to announce the appointment of Dolores Jane Umbridge as High Inquisitor to address the falling standards at Hogwarts School. Things at Hogwarts are far worse than I feared. So Dana, I will ask you first, uh, what are your overall thoughts on Order of the Phoenix as a film? So as the kind of lead-off batter in the back half of these films, um, this film is sort of a beginning in its own way insofar as we can think about the first four films as before Voldemort's return and these four films as after Voldemort's return. And immediately we see what Voldemort's presence brings to this world, and that's a lot of darkness. The film is bleak, like both in its aesthetic and in its substance. The color palette is so gray and I think just gets literally speaking, darker and darker as we move forward with the rest of the movies. The film, substance-wise, also has a much more brooding, internal, and solitary feel, and we're much more in Harry's head rather than watching him and his friends, you know, navigate this wizarding world anymore, and he's being alienated by the public and painted as someone not to be trusted. And of course, this is made more complicated for him in that it coincides with Voldemort's enhanced ability to enter into his mind. So I would say that this film is really, you know affected by this deeper sense of the connection between Harry and Voldemort. And that's ultimately going to foreshadow that idea that part of Voldemort does live in Harry and there is this kind of darkness within that he's so afraid of. Um, 
that we see dating back to the first movie when he's whispering, not slither into the sorting hat in the Sorcerer's Stone. So um, all that being said, I think this film is fine. (laughs) I think it has a lot of ground to cover. This is the longest book. And we definitely could have done worse, but I wouldn't say it's a fun rewatch. Like, if I wanted to put on a Harry Potter movie, I don't see myself picking this one. Yeah, I largely agree with what you're saying, um, both positives and negatives. I think I really like what's going on with Harry as a character in this movie. I think it's very smart to give him an anger and kind of an edge that is sort of pushing him towards the being like Voldemort. And I think that's a really interesting thing to explore in this film, but Like you said, I mean, this is a 870-page book that it's adapting, and it's easily the least coherent film in the entire series. I think virtually nothing is actually explained in this movie about the plot specifically, and I feel like this film is the first film that seems to kind of just give up on explaining certain (laughs) Wizarding World things to people who haven't read the books. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's a lot of explanation put into the books about this prophecy and about the relationship between Harry and Voldemort and all of this, like darker lore i guess in the wizarding world and none of that is in this book or in this movie like i would challenge anybody who hasn't read the books to try and explain what's going on in this movie and like you said that doesn't mean that it's like a terrible movie i think it's still fine um it's it's entertaining in certain points even though the palette is gray it's not muted like some Mm -hmm. of the other ones so i still think it looks really good like there Mm -hmm. are certain scenes that are very pretty to look at mm-hmm. um i think the scenes with harry um doing a montage by teaching dumbledore's army i think all oh, that's really fun and i think umbridge is a fantastic villain but yeah this movie is certainly one of the rougher ones in the series for me yeah we talked about that montage aspect when we were watching it too because i think i asked is this the first time we've gotten yeah. a montage and i think there are two in quick succession actually there's the one of uh, I almost said Dumbridge (laughs) of Umbridge's um, inquisitorial squad kind of being themselves. And then there's one of um, Dumbledore's army. And I think I'm pretty sure that we don't see any montages in the prior movies. And I think that it makes sense to use it here because, again, this is a really long book. So it makes sense to pack a lot of content in how you can. And, you know, montages, famously, you can kind of show a passage of time without showing a passage of time. We can understand that this might not be all be happening on the same day. Um, and so I, so I think that in that sense, those things do work to sort of move the plot along. And I do think it's hard. And I remember, you know, going into this movie thinking, how are they going to, this is, you know, at this point in my life, the longest book I've ever read. Like, how mm-hmm. are they going to put this all in a movie? Yeah, I, I think something that this film struggles a little bit with is the stratification between what goes on in Hogwarts and the more larger scale plot of this film, that stratification is really apparent mm-hmm. in this movie. I, I, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does, you know, basically nothing of real consequence happens at Hogwarts. Everything that goes down at Hogwarts has nothing to do with what happens in the last 15 minutes of this movie. We kind of just hang out. We witness things going to shit under Umbridge's regime. And then when it's time to kick off the third act of this film, they kind of just dip and go straight to the Ministry of Magic. And there's not anything really tying what we saw in the first two hours and 15 minutes to the last 15 minutes. And I guess you could say that they're kind of training throughout the school year. And that's the montage aspect and Mm -hmm. learning all the spells in Dumbledore's army. But I don't think that's paid off nearly as much in the film as it is in the books. 
because other than Harry, nobody really does anything in the Ministry of Magic. And we right. know at this point, Harry's the teacher. Harry's the one that's teaching everybody. So he's not really learning anything in this training montage. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel like all of that training build off needs to be paid off in the other characters doing something. And none of those characters ever really actually feel like characters. Like, I don't actually buy the pitch of this film that's like this ragtag group of kids infiltrating the ministry and mm -hmm. stirring up shit. I, I feel like most of that is pretty unearned in this movie. Yeah, I think that, you know, as we've sort of already said about many things about this movie, I think it would be really hard to care about any of those other characters if you hadn't read the book. Yeah. Like even even Neville and Luna, I think it's really hard for us to, you know, divorce what we know about them from the books, from our feelings about them in the movie. But I do feel like if you didn't read the books, you you probably just wouldn't really care about them. Yeah. And that's actually something that I started noticing more and more in these later films. And I'm sure something we'll talk about in later films as well. But other than Harry, Ron and Hermione, and then of course, Dumbledore and Snape to an extent, I feel like I don't really care too much about any of these characters. They're not actually characters in the movies. Neville doesn't have anything to him. He's just like that goofy dude that you can kind of throw a joke at right. every now and then. Mm -hmm. But there's no there's no like emotional stake in his story because we don't know his story from the movies. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, that feels like they could have elaborated a little bit on. We do get a little bit of context in Goblet of Fire about mm -hmm. what happened to his parents, but we never get that scene, um, you know, where we see um, his parents, you know, in the, the institution where they live um, after having been tortured by Bellatrix Lestrange and the Death Eaters. And I do think that some of that would have been nice, especially with the context that we know from the books of Neville being so close to having been the kind of yeah. chosen one or the, you know, at least the kind of decoy chosen one. Yeah. And also knowing that he's going to inevitably kill the last Horcrux mm -hmm. of Voldemort. I, we're skipping a little ahead, I guess. So we'll save that for part two mainly. But I think trimming down a lot of this stuff makes sense in the sense of if you're telling just the story of Harry. But because the second book kind of brings so many extra pieces into it and make, means that you have to like care about this character and you have to understand what's happening with Snape and all of this stuff. And I don't think that these movies do that good of a job at making characters out of anybody other than the three main leads. Yeah. And one conversation that you and I have had is about when are they going to remake these movies and what will that look like? And something that you've said that hadn't occurred to me is that you think that they'll bring it back as a series yeah. rather than um, as as a film franchise. And I think that that has some really interesting potential for going deeper into some of these stories and even maybe doing, you know, POV episodes from other characters' perspectives. So I think that that could be something that maybe we'll get. I don't think that we should get it anytime soon because I honestly don't think that we're in a place where we're sort of ready for that yet. But I think, you know, in the coming um, decade or two. That's something that um, we'll probably have uh, coming out. Yeah. If we as a society are still making things in a decade <laughs> or two, I think doing a, sh a television show of Harry Potter would give like a fresh spin to this story because we obviously don't need to just see this exact thing over and over again. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the more positive aspects of this film because there are things that work really well in this film, in my opinion, even though it's not my favorite. Um, I really like that this film is about something, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's not exactly deep and you're not going to get your mind blown by any philosophical connections or anything, but this film does take the themes that we were talking about in that fourth film that you brought up, which was that adults don't really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
And it kind of carries over to this more mature commentary in this film that the government and authorities in general don't really know what they're doing. And they're often actually actively disseminating false information. And again, there's not any deep parallels between what the Ministry of Magic is doing in this movie and really anything in real life. I mean, you know, you could make the argument that it's similar to Nazi Germany or something like that. I don't think it's that deep, but just this inkling of distrusting authority and the idea of bad people taking over the government, I think is really interesting and a fun thing for this movie to explore. And it's definitely a more mature concept. Yeah. And especially that that government overreach coming into um, the, schools, the yeah. school of this this book and this movie introduced the character of Umbridge, who is awful, but is an amazing character um, and a really, you know, excellent new villain to bring in at this point, which is kind of good because, you know, there is a little bit of Voldemort fatigue, I think, if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even just Death Eaters like this is, you know, she's she's a woman in a pink pantsuit um, and and the way that she's a villain is she actually wears a skirt, but <laughs> You get a pantsuit can have a skirt or no, never mind. A pantsuit can't. Oh, never mind. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, She's in a business attire, yes. but it's all pink. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I was just being nitpicky. Uh, girl boss vibes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, the the sense of dread that we feel about, you know, watching their first class with Umbridge just reminds me of like, you know, you're on the first day of like middle school or high school when you're meeting your teachers for the first time. And obviously not on the scale in my personal experience, but like, did you ever have like a first class of the year where you were just like, oh my God, I can't believe that every day I'm <laughs> going to have to sit and learn from this person for a year. And I mean, obviously, again, this is much, much worse than that. And I think that we we get the the full sense of how evil she is, is when Harry has to go to her office and he realizes as he's writing, I must not tell lies, how that's, you know, being etched into his skin. Yeah. And then when Umbridge says, you know, deep down, you know that you deserve to be punished. And you watch Harry just realize, like, oh, this woman is really, really yeah. bad. Um, and you're sort of experiencing that with him. And I think that she's a really well done villain. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that we can talk about this film kind of in two parts. We have the umbrage part, which again, grand scheme of things, not that consequential. It just kind of shows decay of the wizarding world and then the Voldemort part. And I do think that the umbrage part is really, really good because as you say, umbrage is just so instantly unlikable. It's pretty amazing that a woman who turned out to be so unlikable is able to write such easily unlikable characters. I mean, I think she does a really good job at making these characters that just from the first sentence or the first appearance on screen, you're like, that person sucks. Mm -hmm. And it's Umbridge, it's Bellatrix, it's uh, Gilderoy Lockhart in a mm -hmm. different way. Like, you just instantly hate these characters. And just, do you know what the the actress's name is? I, I had, I had, but I forget. Imelda Staunton. Yeah, Imelda Staunton. I think her performance of this character is just amazing. Her Definitely. little, like, giggle. Um, the way that she just talks down to Dumbledore instantly. Um she condescends people just by talking to them. She sizes up with Professor McGonagall, who I love in this movie. It's just all such an amazing character. And the thing that I really love about her is that she is almost the most evil character in the movie or in the series because she's a real character and like a real possibility of somebody that you can interact with in mm -hmm. real life, right? Like 
she exists. You know people like this, perhaps not as extreme, but somewhat like this. Like, it's very rare that you run into Hitler on the street, right? You don't have to interact with that type of evil on a day-to-day basis. I mean, maybe we do nowadays, but, you know, I think Umbridge just has that very raw sense of just awfulness, and I, I think it's an amazing character. Yeah, you definitely feel you know, the sense that she knows what she's doing and she knows how she's benefiting from her own actions and just has no regard for how they might affect other people, just is like full on sociopath. And like, you don't even have a sense of, you know, what her, you know, end game is because it's not really based on any like real, you know, worldview or ideology. It's just like she wants to be able to, you know, shape the world how she wants it to be at her whim and she knows how to navigate the system and the government to do that yeah i completely agree i think she is just a top tier villain in this franchise um especially considering that she's only in this movie and then deathly hollows part one as like a small sort of cameo um the other villain that we get introduced to in this movie is bellatrix lestrange who similarly i just instantly hated i think helen bonham carter does an amazing job at portraying her because every time I see Helen Bonham Carter in something else, I just hate her because I know that she's Bellatrix Lestrange and that character is so vile. Yeah, that's an amazing casting. Um, yeah. I wonder at what point they decided, you know, that she was going to play her, but I, I can't imagine anyone else in this role. Um, I, you know, I, I can't say, you know, like, oh, I love that, you know, I love her because I can't even bring myself to say mm-hmm. that but but she's just is she is bellatrix lestrange yeah just her energy um i think one of the most upsetting things in this movie is when harry's chasing her through the ministry of magic and uh she had just killed sirius and she's screaming i killed sirius black like yeah, that to- whole thing just makes me so angry and i just want harry to like hurt her and that's exactly what the movie is wanting you to feel and i think that without that performance you don't get that Mm -hmm. and just again the knowledge when when you come to think of it and i have these moments a lot throughout the next few movies with regard to the death eaters and their relationships to the main characters of they're fighting children like she is (laughs) she is taunting a 15 year old boy that she just killed his godfather and you know you really just wonder about these people and you know what they're what they're kind of going for to be willing to be so evil to literal children yeah i mean i guess ends justify the means they're trying to fight for something that they believe in yeah pure blood supremacy what did you think about the uh serious death in the movie um it is a little weird um okay (laughs) so we have this this veil in in the ministry that's talked about a little bit more in the book and there's this idea that you know like harry can hear the whispers from the other side of the veil and so Bellatrix, um, Avada Kedev, Sirius, and then he just kind of really quietly slips beyond the veil. And it handles this pretty anticlimactically. And I think that a lot of deaths yes. <laughs> that will unfold for the rest of the series we find to be kind of leaving us something to be desired with the idea that death is sort of the most just viscerally distressing thing that you should be able to watch. And maybe it's something to do with the fact that it doesn't 
happen in a way that we as non-magical beings can understand death, which normally involves, you know, like a wound and uh, Mm -hmm. a dying moment. And we don't get that with an Avada Kedavra, but... Yeah, there's something about it that's just a little bit like, oh, okay, bye, I guess you're gone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a prime example of this book choosing, or of this movie, I should say, choosing not to explain something that is kind of important to people, especially if you've never read the books. Like, I don't personally remember what this veil thing is in the book. So I'm just sitting here like, what, what the hell is that? And it kind of detracts away from the death scene that we're supposed to be feeling with Sirius. And... I completely agree with you, especially as we go on in these movies. There's maybe a handful of deaths that are feel emotionally impactful to me as a viewer. And um, I think part of that, just on retrospection, and I've been trying to think about this a lot, like, why does the serious death not work, but the Cedric death does, even though Cedric is a virtually meaningless character? All of these things. I mean, first off, you've got that Cedric is the first death, so it's the most impactful of this series. But then as the movies, the fourth book, which we talked about, or the sorry, the fourth movie, gives the characters time to grieve that character mm-hmm. almost too much. <laughs> like there, yeah. there's there's a very long lingering scene of the father just gutturally crying over his boy. And we don't get that in any of these other movies other than one or two of them, which are the ones that are impactful that we'll talk about when we get there. But there's just very little time for these characters to mourn over the deaths and like Harry never addresses Sirius's death other than out of rage going after um, Mm -hmm. uh, Bellatrix. But I remember in the books, there's this thing when Harry kind of hopes and he's talking to Dumbledore maybe, or even it might even be like nearly headless Nick. I don't know where he's talking about maybe Sirius will come back as a ghost and we can be around. And they explain like, that's not something Sirius would want Uh, ghosts, blah, blah. I don't don't remember Mm -hmm. exactly what it is, but there's some like, reconciliation with the idea that maybe he's not gone and no coming to the like fact that he actually is gone and i think the movies really need that yeah i agree with that and i think that i agree with how you're comparing what is so impactful about the cedric death is not the way that he dies because that's also um you know he dies in the same way with killing curse but but we see characters react to it and i mean that ultimately is you know, I think what's is sad about death is, I mean, it's of course sad that this person has been deprived of living the rest of their life and being able to do the things that they wanted to do. And it's so cruel. But but I think what's really hard for, you know, us just as humans with the dealing with death is knowing that we have to go on without them and, mm-hmm. and how our lives have changed. And when we don't see people actually have time to the, sit in those feelings, we're not getting that grief. and it, And it makes it harder for us to emotionally feel that death because it's just if it's just we see this person go away as a viewer it's okay he's not going to be in the movie anymore but if we don't see people actually processing it it's really hard to feel affected by it yeah especially when you know that that death is coming too right Right. like that is the downside of rewatching these movies or even reading the books before seeing the movies is that like you're almost waiting for it to happen Mm -hmm. so they kind of need to have an extra there kind of needs to be an extra amount of emotion there Otherwise, you're just like, oh, well, I knew that was coming. And I guess that's like kind of the burden of the viewer or whatever. But I do think that when movies are really effective, like, we, I mean, we knew Cedric was going to die, but we were still watching that movie and going, I do not want to watch this kid die. Mm-hmm. Um, he's such a good character. And then the end, we just did not want to watch it, even though we knew exactly what was going to happen. So I, I guess I like 
almost put up a defense for the movie and then smacked it straight <laughs> down. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think that this is something that these movies continue to struggle with as they go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to move on to most iconic lines? Sure. So I think that one um, that's really funny that happens towards the beginning is um, Umbridge is kind of interviewing um, everyone and she like says to Snape, like, oh, didn't you apply for the Defense mm. Against the Dark Arts position? And she famously is the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. And she goes, but you were unsuccessful. And Alan Rickman with his Alan Rickman way goes, <laughs> obviously. And he just he's just so annoyed. Yeah. And it's just it's just wonderful. I do really like watching the Hogwarts professors react to the things that are like going on in Hogwarts. Yeah. Especially McGonagall mm-hmm. and yeah, even Snape. You can tell that these people hate what's going on, but there's nothing they can do. Yeah, I agree, especially McGonagall in that because she had sort of had this almost reputation as like she's the more kind of like, you know, disciplinarian like she like she's you know, we like her, but she's a little bit, you know, she's like an older lady and she's portrayed in kind of a traditional older lady sense. You know, she cares about the rules and things. But when Umbridge comes in and in her Umbridge way, McGonagall hates her and she's like, (laughs) no, 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 we do not stand for this. And that's fun to watch. Yeah. Um, other lines that I, I love when Dumbledore says when they come to take him away, um, you know, after he sort of takes the fall for Dumbledore's army and he says, you seem to be laboring under the delusion that I'm going to, what was the phrase? Come quietly. Yep. I think that's just an amazing, amazing line. And sometimes Dumbledore, when you know that he's doing something to be dramatic it's that line where like kingsley's like you can say a lot of things about dumbledore but like you can't deny he has style and sometimes that does come through yeah that's one of my lines is kings is kingsley saying that he says you may not like him but you can't deny it dumbledore's got style and he does (laughs) yeah it's a that's a very good scene and finally and my other one that i have is also a dumbledore line i don't know that it's an iconic line and that it's referenced a lot but it stuck out to me is um, when Dumbledore shows up at the ministry and um, he says to to Voldemort, it was foolish of you to come here tonight, Tom. Because I think calling Voldemort Tom, I realized is this is what everyone should have been doing, which in retrospect seems so obvious when I was like, why don't they just come up with a code name for him or something? But it's like, they should just all be calling him Tom. If he's asking people to call him Lord Voldemort, mm-hmm. like how better to disempower him than just by ke- continuing to call him Tom? And I think that Dumbledore saying that to him must be so infuriating because he's yeah. always wanted to be sort of respected by a rightful as a rightful adversary of Dumbledore as Lord Voldemort. And Dumbledore's just like, nah, you're this boy Tom that I met when you were a kid and I'm going <laughs> to call you like I see you. I wish he was like, Tommy, yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tommy, my man, Tom. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And I really like that Dumbledore is one of the few people who does not give Voldemort that pleasure, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, same with Harry. And then even in the last movie, McGonagall finally is like, you might as well call him Voldemort, mm-hmm. which is, is a little different, but it's definitely less respectful to say, just outright say Voldemort than to say he who must not be named or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple other most iconic lines. Please share. One of mine that I really love from this movie is, well, how was it? Wet. <laughs> when Hermione asks how Harry and uh, Cho's makeout session was. I think it's really funny, obviously, because of like the somewhat innuendo, but it's just so awkward 
And that kiss is so awkward in general that I yeah. think it's the perfect like cut cut joke or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just really funny that they're making out in front of Cedric's picture. Yeah, it's a little scene. insensitive. Yeah, like I don't exactly know how pictures work in the wizarding world, but it seems that they kind of have a mind of their own and a somewhat conscious and like a sentience. So Cedric's probably just like, yeah, okay, this this might as well happen. <laughs> um, but I think that's a good line. The other line is a classic, um, there's a storm coming, Ari, yeah. from Hagrid. He's talking about a storm coming or something, I don't know, but <laughs> it's a trailer line, it's great. And then, um, as I said, the I killed Sirius Black uh, yeah. chant from Bellatrix, I think, is just so messed up and made me instantly hate her as a character. For sure. Uh, Potter Problems, a.k.a. Nitpicks. Dana, I'm sure you have plenty of these for this movie. Of course. Um, So first of all, I don't think that it makes sense for Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle to join the Inquisitorial Squad. This isn't really a fault of the movie. I mean, I think this happens in the book. But of course, this trio of characters sucks. And yes, people on that squad suck. But the transfer property doesn't really apply here, I think, because I don't think that Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle suck in that particular way. Like, I don't think that they're narcs. I don't think that they would, you know, feel cool about going around and, like, telling on people. It feels kind of, like, infantilizing. So I just, I don't know. I thought that was kind of dumb. What did you think about that? I mean, you do have Malfoy narking on them in the first movie, famously, as they're chatting with Hagrid or whatever. But yeah, I agree. It does feel a little like they became the cops yeah. or something, which I don't feel like is their MO. Like I feel like they're very much on the the outskirts of the rules and mm-hmm. things like that. I, I will say though that having random people wouldn't make much sense either. So That's I true. understand why they have to do that. But yeah, it's it's a fair criticism of like the characterization of those characters. Mm-hmm. Another nitpick I have is, so so all of these Death Eater friends that come meet up with Tommy V have broken out of Azkaban, and apparently this is a big deal, and we see all these headlines about it. So I, I'm once again asking, what happened with Barty Crouch Jr. that no <laughs> one noticed he was gone? Like, what, what it, does that make sense to you? Do we get an explanation for that? No. Okay. I... I- I think we're just not really supposed to think about it. There's a lot of like breaking apart their own logic here for sure. And it also seems like all they have to do to break Bellatrix, at least out of whatever prison she's in, is blow a hole in her cage and then she just gets to walk out. And I mean, again, I think the idea here is that the Dementors have been either recruited or thwarted by the dark forces or whatever. So they're no longer doing their job. I guess. Um, So maybe that makes it easier, but it still doesn't really explain how nobody noticed that a prisoner was gone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I find that I'm kind of obsessed with this. This what (laughs) what was BCJ doing right question. Moving right along. um, I something that I find annoying about, you know, this whole storyline throughout the movie is why. And, you know, this is the movie where we have the occlumency come up of you know, Harry having to try to keep Voldemort out of his brain and, you mm-hmm. know, Voldemort being able to access Harry's brain. So I I do understand the premise 
of why it was important for, you know, Dumbledore to not be so close to Harry throughout this year. However, I don't understand why Dumbledore couldn't have explained this to Harry instead of just being kind of really evasive and ignoring him when, you know, he's going through a lot. And again, he's a child and he's it's really important that he understand what's going on. And Dumbledore's like, well, I don't, you know, it's kind of risky. So I'm just going to disappear from this child who is dependent on me's life. And I think that that's really (laughs) irresponsible. Yep. That is one of my main nitpicks, too, is that's just a major miscalculation. How do you think that's a good idea to ignore this kid who has been ignored his whole life? It's a really dumb thing for Dumbledore to do. Because even if Voldemort could see, you know, that they had this conversation, like that wouldn't that wouldn't do anything for him. You know, he wouldn't like even if he knew that Dumbledore was staying away from Harry intentionally, that doesn't really help him in any way. Yeah. I mean, in general, I feel like the Harry and Voldemort connection is kind of poorly explained throughout all of these movies, Mm -hmm. as well as how much each individual character understands about it is very ambiguous. And I think for Dumbledore, that's kind of purposeful because you're not supposed to know how much he knows because there's the reveal at the end that he was doing all this to sacrifice Harry or whatever. But I think something that this movie really has a problem with is that the prophecy thing isn't explained at all. Mm -hmm. The relationship between Harry and Voldemort is kind of hand-waved. They they mention that Voldemort is looking for something, right? but it's never explained that that thing is a prophecy until they just show up at the Ministry of Magic and they're like, we need a prophecy. <laughs> and also, they don't explain why the prophecy is helpful. Right. This prophecy also is really dumb. It says that one of them will kill the other. That's a pretty general prophecy. That's, yeah. that's a pretty good conclusion to make. It's not a very... Like, why does that give Voldemort something that he didn't have before. I don't understand what this prophecy is, what the point of it is. Mm-hmm. I don't understand any of this. Yeah, no, I I definitely definitely agree that the significance of that is not well explained. And also there are so many prophecies in that hall and Not anymore. We, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they take a little tumble. But I do wonder just, you know, how there were so many things to make prophecies about, just you know, and what all of those contain. Obviously, you know, those are, you know, contain their own stories i'm sure but there are millions of them in this room and you have to wonder like is this is this the most important one is this the only important one what's going on with the rest of these yeah it's it's a weird scene the prophecy thing is dumb i don't really even understand why it's introduced in the books um and i think some of the problems are probably explained in the books but i hate the oh it's in the books hand-waving thing of like a movie should absolutely stand on its own and i think if you don't explain the prophecy in the movie that's a really weak point of the movie yeah i agree with that and i have uh one one final nitpick that i'll share for this movie that does um continue to come up for me throughout the rest of the movies so this this film we see a lot more fighting for the first time of just you know spell fighting actual Mm -hmm. dueling adults trying to kill each other with wands like one-on-one and you know Mm -hmm. the stakes are high and you know the death eaters have come to play they came here to murder they're throwing their avada cadavs and these you (laughs) know dies i think is the the plural (laughs) the these high horsey order people are out here not aking back and i like it just it doesn't make any sense to me 
Like, it's bringing a knife to a gunfight to be throwing Expelliarmus, which Sirius is not throwing the Avada Kedev at Bellatrix. And it's like, she's here to kill you. Like, what What are you What are you trying to prove, like, that you're a good person or something by, you know, not throwing it back? Like, you know, I'm not pro murdering people but like it's like if if you were to watch you know a a movie where there was a sword fight and someone was like actually like i just brought this kind of like foam noodle because i don't actually (laughs) believe in killing and it's like no you 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 have to be willing to kill these people are gonna kill you yeah um i agree i i think that there is something about the avada kedavra spell specifically that's like unforgivable or you you know, I mean, it is an unforgivable curse, but I, I do think that there's something where you have to have malice in your heart to use it. So I think that might be part of it. But at the same time, also like using Reducto, which is essentially exploding something that kills people that, that can kill people. There are plenty of people who definitely die from being launched 50 feet in the air. That's true. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that it's just kind of a way to um, delineate between the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I do think, you know, we, we did get that unforgivable curse lesson in um in Goblet of Fire. However, we will see in the later movies that um, you know, Harry starts throwing down some unforgivable curses. Oh, yeah. So that seems to kind of unwrite this idea that, you know, these people were all too good for that when, you know, suddenly it's like, mm, yeah, just we need something from him. Let's toss out an Imperio. Yeah. Fair point. I would not begrudge them for throwing some AKs, for sure. Uh, I just have a couple other nitpicks here. Nothing too major that we haven't touched on already. This isn't so much a nitpick as much as uh, I kind of wish we saw this from their perspective. But when they use the Thestrals to fly to um, London so that they can go to the Ministry of Magic, Ron and Hermione are theoretically flying on nothing. Yeah. Same with Neville. (laughs) Like... They, <laughs> it would just be really funny to see what that looks like from their perspective mm-hmm. because they have to mount something that they don't see and then they're kind of just hovering in air, which I think is funny. Um, another dumb nitpick: Where are all the people that work at the Ministry of Magic when all of this is going down? Yeah, there's apparently no security. Yeah, and I mean, I think that is a huge part of the book, and it's not as easy as just waltzing in. And they also, well, make yeah, kind there's of a, a, they have to get through. They have to like pick a door, and there's a whole thing. Yeah, and there's like essentially traps similar yeah. to the sorcerer's stone right but and i guess this is also at nighttime or something or in the middle of the day but there should be night workers or something like yeah. you know the custodial staff <laughs> <laughs> it's just completely empty as voldemort and uh, dumbledore are throwing down yeah but, um yeah no, no no other real nitpicks i think a lot of my problems with this movie are actual problems as opposed to nitpicks so um pretty sparse here mm-hmm uh, what are some of your favorite moments from the film, Dana? So um, a small one that I like towards the beginning reckons back to sort of when we something we talked about in the in our prior episode recording together is just when we see little kind of normal moments of the characters just kind of navigating the world together. And I love on the way to Harry's trial when um, Mr. Weasley is go- trying to go through the subway um, <laughs> and he like can't figure out how to use the turnstile. And I would watch just like a whole story from the perspective of Mr. Weasley navigating the muggle world because I just love his fascination with it and watching him try to use muggle contraptions. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and then my only other one that I'll mention is I do love 
the scene where um, Fred and George go out yeah. with a bang um, and, you know, they, they set off their fireworks and they set off on their brooms and they go off to live a beautiful life together until Fred dies um, <laughs> in one year. Um, so that's sad. <laughs> um, oh, true, true, true. Two years, two years of um, happy twin life. But yeah, that's that's all I got. How about you? Uh, I got I got quite a few that I think I, I really like. Um, I really like the first scene when Harry's talking to all the kids in the shack and he says something like, I'm not that special. It was luck that got me here and I had help all the time. I think it's almost like a meta moment for Harry. Like I think I think it's a really good scene because it kind of breaks apart the movies a little bit and it shows that these things that he's doing are actually really serious. Mm-hmm. And it almost retrospectively takes away some of the joy of those earlier movies where it's like, oh, you know, you know, he he's fighting a giant ass snake, but you never feel like he's going to die in that moment because it's a kid's movie. Right. But then when he's talking about this, I just kind of feel like that moment sort of makes everything feel more real. And I really like that. And I think it really shows the maturation of the um of the series. But then unfortunately that like what distracts from that is this ragtag group of kids going to the Ministry of Magic and fighting Death Eaters. Like, yeah. I don't buy that at all. But anyways, um, I really like that. I thought the, as we've said before, the Dumbledore's army thing is really cool. It's a cool concept. And I think the training montages are really fun and seeing all the different Patronuses and stuff. Although again, kind of detracts from the fact that Harry is supposedly a really good defense against the dark arts wizard yeah like now anybody can do it if they have a good teacher so i guess harry's real gift is being a good teacher fine um and then one of the last things is i really like the dumbledore and voldemort fight i think it's very cinematic probably one of the most cinematic climaxes in the whole movie or in the whole series um and the fact that they use like the four different elements i think is a cool little touch yeah um it's just really visually appealing yeah yeah that's those are all those are all good moments I'll say one last little nitpick or funny thing that I thought was that it's an overall good scene. I really like when Voldemort's kind of in Harry's mind and there's that beautiful music swell and he realizes that it's not he how he and Voldemort are similar, but how they're different, which is what separates them and what makes them so powerful. And this idea that Harry is loved and Voldemort isn't. But during this whole kind of, again, almost montage or like flash of scenes, there's always these scenes of Voldemort just kind of like making uh, the band kiss faces <laughs> like in on a black screen. Like he'll just be like, yeah, there like are stick some his weird little shots like that. And it just looks like a music video because like in the background, it looks like a iMovies effect or something of just black clouds. Mm-hmm. And it's so silly um, in an otherwise really effective scene, which I think summarizes my thoughts on this movie perfectly. <laughs> yeah. All right, with that, let's go ahead and move on to The Half-Blood Prince. This is the sixth film in the Harry Potter franchise. Times like these, dark times, you can bring people together. Take my hand. They can tear them apart. These girls, they're going to kill me, Harry. Dana, overall thoughts on The Half-Blood Prince? So, I mean, I I will note that, so coming out in 2009, this is the first film release after the final book had come out. So I feel like there's okay. an even more of a kind of swarm around these movies at this time, because this is all we have left at this point. And the series, you know, for the most part until now, has really been about the books. Like, obviously, people love the movies, but 
but the books have been so exciting for people on a level that for so many people, books had never been so exciting before. And for many people, books were never so exciting again. <laughs> yeah. Um, little did we know um, at the time, thinking that we were almost done with this IP, that J.K. Rowling would never leave us alone <laughs> and would never <laughs> stop dropping little tidbits on us about the wizarding world uh, for us to grapple with in our adulthood. Um, anyway, you sort of really touched on this um, already in, in Order of the Phoenix, which we just discussed. But a lot in this movie isn't explained mm -hmm. for people coming into it. And I think that you can watch movies one through four without reading the books or having seen all the movies and just enjoy the ride. Um, and Order of the Phoenix might not be a great movie on its own, but I feel like there's enough that you can figure out. There's enough of a story so that you could turn it on and sort of, you know, make sense of it as a movie. However, I do not think that, like, you could get into this movie if you had not seen anything else or read okay. anything else. Um this is the chapter of the franchise where we learn about Horcruxes, which quickly becomes like the thing. And the yeah. rest of the movie is just, I mean, the rest of the movie franchise and the whole franchise is about Horcruxes. And we do get an explanation of what Horcruxes are from Slughorn's memory, but we don't really get a lot of insight into these actual objects. And when the rest of the franchise is going to be about chasing these objects, it does feel really kind of unrealized once we get mm -hmm. like, okay, he split his soul and he put it into different things. And the quest for these little objects begins in this movie and and the stakes are really high. But I, I think that it cuts out a lot of Voldemort's backstory and I think takes dimension away from him as a villain when we don't really understand, you know, who he is or why he's he's chosen these things that we're now chasing. With all of this being said, this film actually does have some fun in it that was yeah. kind of missing, I think, from the last one. We see Harry looking like he's having fun again, um, which is nice. There is also in this movie famously a kind of sexual awakening for a lot of the characters. <laughs> um, we have the Ron and Lavender plotline and the Harry and Ginny stuff and the Ramil Devane thing. And I, I wouldn't you know, want to be on record as saying that any of these romantic subplots are well executed, but it's a little, you know, it's a new, new new kind of nuance that we've brought into the movies. And I think that a lot of the fun moments come from interactions between Harry and Slughorn, mm -hmm. who is portrayed excellently by Jim Broadbent, who I think is one of the best late additions to these movies. And I think um, his character is super fun. And again, I don't know that this movie is good as a movie, again, but I think that as a sort of chapter of something larger, it works. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's a, a good way to put it. Um, I remember hating this movie when I first watched it. Mm -hmm. I remember it being incredibly disappointing. It was much better on this most recent rewatch for me personally. Uh, I think right off the bat, as you say, this movie tells us that it is horny. The <laughs> opening scene is Harry just trying to get with this girl, which we almost never see happen. Um, and you're right, the movie, it's it's really, really funny. I think there are genuinely like laugh-out-loud moments mm -hmm. in this film that the other films in the series they kind of have these like haha chuckles but these ones there are some actually really hilarious lines yeah and i think it's that humor that i'll push a little back on how like you can enjoy this movie if you haven't seen the books because i do think that that humor does carry the movie a little bit and mm -hmm. it makes up for the fact that virtually nothing happens in this movie right <laughs> like this is as you're saying this is an exposition dump of a movie the only things that we need to know from this movie are that horcruxes exist and that Snape is now evil and Dumbledore is dead, mm -hmm. all which all of which happens in roughly the last 30 minutes of this movie. 
But I do think that, as you're saying, kind of that last hurrah of fun is part of what makes this movie enjoyable for me. And I agree. Slughorn, uh, great character. Um, I think the ending and, and the death scene with Dumbledore, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, is actually quite effective. The two things that I think this movie does very poorly is that <laughs> the Ginny and Harry relationship fucking sucks. It does. It is probably the worst chemistry I've ever seen between two actors. I don't think it helps that Bonnie Wright is a pretty bad actress, but they, she has no care. Uh, she has no chemistry with Daniel Radcliffe. So that's all weak. And another thing that I think this movie completely botches is the Half-Blood Prince storyline. Yes. And the fact that Snape is barely in this movie, the fact that he yes. tries to say, I'm the Half-Blood Prince, as if it's this amazing reveal when it actually has no impact on what is happening in this story. The fact that the title of this movie is nonsense until you've seen the very last film when you realize that it's actually important. The Half-Blood Prince is important to Dumbledore dying and everything like that. But because, and I, I think there's also like, Harry learns more about the Half-Blood Prince and he learns more about his backstory. Yeah, because like, it's his it's his mom's like maiden name and everything, Snape's. Like that's why he's the Half-Blood Prince and that's never mentioned in the movies. Yeah, so all of that really, really poorly executed in this film. Though I will say that Snape being good retrospectively tracks very well in this movie mm -hmm. so it, it's a mixed bag but i do enjoy this movie um a little bit more than i thought i did yeah i i think that everything you said um i completely agree with and i think was really well put um i think that the snape plot line is is so important and i think it's one of those things that when we as people who look back on this whole franchise i think that's one of the most memorable things yeah. about it is the Snape plot line and the Snape redemption arc. That's not even really a redemption arc because he was never actually... Well, I mean, I guess he was bad once, but it was like kind of before we ever even knew him. But I, I really wish that Snape was in this movie more, um, you know, prior to when he kills Dumbledore because he's he's not really around that much. And I, I, I would have loved to see him more because, I mean, of course I love Alan Rickman and I do love the Snape character, but I, I wish that we saw a little bit more. Um, because I do think that that's one of the really positive things that does sort of color this movie. Yeah, it's a really missed opportunity. And again, I think that comes back to the fact that these movies don't know what to do with characters that aren't Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And I mean, even let's just cut that down to Harry and Hermione. They do Ron dirty in this film yeah, series. that's true. But yeah, they they really struggle with making these secondary characters seem like actual people and giving them enough screen time. And I think that is a difficult task for sure. That's like, it's almost like the Avengers Endgame things kind of putting an important thing on like the Falcon mm -hmm. or something. And, you know, he's just there to kind of color the universe. Yeah. To what extent do you think that this problem is founded upon going back to the beginning? If we look back at the Sorcerer's Stone when Harry's, you know, 11 and the, the this movie is targeted at kids and it's about watching this other kid. Like, I wonder to what extent, you know, if from the beginning it had been more about, you know, more than Harry. I think I think it struggles to make that transition. Yeah. And I think that it had a hard task in growing up with its audience. But I think that it never fully makes that step into being about the the world and the bigger conflict in the world in the way that it could have. That's a really good point. And I mean, I'm not a screenwriter or a 
screenwriter of a you know multi-billion dollar franchise. <laughs> so I don't know the answer to that, but it, it is a really good point that like what this movie was trying to be at the start is very different from what it was trying to be at the end. And I think that a lot of the weaknesses of those latter movies are because of that. I mm-hmm. think that's a great point. Something that this movie does do that sort of alludes to the kind of like we're all grown up is continuing to sort of trend towards portraying Dumbledore as a really fallible man Mm -hmm. in the way that we had not been seeing him in the first couple movies. He's much more humanized here, of course, in a literal sense that he's shown to be mortal when he passes away. But you see from the beginning of this movie how much blind trust Harry has in Dumbledore. Like um, from the very beginning where he says, um, where Harry says to Dumbledore, you said that Slughorn's going to try to collect me. Do you want me to let him? And Dumbledore says, yes. And Harry says, okay. And Harry doesn't know why, you know, Mm -hmm. there's so many times when Harry just basically says, you know, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that is ultimately made pretty tragic when we find out (laughs) later that Dumbledore knew this was all leading up to Harry's death. And I do think it's important to note that Dumbledore, I think, knew Harry well enough to know that he would be willing to die for all of these people. But it still is kind of messed up because he (laughs) is a child. So, you know, I think that the the Harry-Dumbledore relationship is really a big part of this movie. And and that sort of is because, you know, we're about we're about to lose Dumbledore as a character. And so we sort of have to have our our kind of last hurrah with him. But watching Michael Gambon in this movie is really hard for me, especially because, like, he's so sickly for the entire movie because we find out later that he was dying the whole time. And mm-hmm. that's a that's a big part of, you know, why he wanted Snape to kill him anyway, because it was it was sort of a perfect plan for Snape to kill him because it was an opportunity and that Dumbledore was going to die regardless of what Snape did. So what an amazing opportunity to prove his loyalty to Voldemort by um, by Snape killing him. But then especially watching the scene at the lake when Dumbledore is drinking the potion, I hate watching that. Yeah, I think that's the one scene in the entire franchise where you kind of see him lose his composure. Mm-hmm. Other than, of course, when he yells at Harry for putting his name <laughs> in the goblet of fire. But that's not canon. We know that. But yeah, it's really tragic to watch him like suffer. And you obviously know that the that thing is making him relive memories and his regrets and all the stuff that he like does with Ariana, his sister, and all of this stuff, which is obviously more explained in the book of the Deathly Hollows than the movies. But I think that's one of those examples of how reading the books is not mandatory but highlights the experience in a way. So it's like not necessarily pertinent information to understand what's going on in the scene, but it does like make that scene more effective for the people who have read the books. Uh, The other thing that you pointed out that that very beginning scene is showing how much Harry trusts Dumbledore, but it's also showing that Dumbledore is not against using Harry for his advantage. Right. And I think that's a really, really smart setup Mm -hmm. that obviously gets paid off. And it's no mistake that I thought that the writing was really poor in the last movie. That is the only movie that's not directed or written by Stephen Cloves. He's back for this one. And again, I think he is very good at setup payoff. And that's one of those little things that I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. The one other thing I'll say before moving on is that the Tom Felton performance in this movie is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of amazing how 
empathetic he comes off as. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he, he comes off as a little bit of like a wussy in the last movie, I would say. But in this one, he doesn't come off as a wussy. He comes off as a kid who is way in over his head and is doing something that he clearly doesn't want to do. I think it's really good. His interactions with Harry, his interactions with Dumbledore. Like you can tell there's almost like a fealty between Dumbledore and, and Malfoy. I think all of that is really good. It's it's a really good performance from Felton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the confrontation scene between Malfoy and Dumbledore is well done. You see how much Malfoy is struggling and you see Dumbledore feeling legitimate mercy towards him Of and he knows. It's not even that he doesn't want Draco to kill him, you know, for, for obvious reasons, but he, he knows how much this would mess Draco up and he knows that he Draco, you know, we know that he's he's not a nice kid. He's a bully, but he we we've kind of come to understand that like he's not a killer and he he doesn't want this for himself really. And he has you feel bad for him because he's been raised in this tradition of like hate and murder and he never really had a choice. And I think that the Malfoy arc, you know, ultimately proves pretty interesting and we'll touch on this in the next movie what ends up happening or the next two movies what ends up happening with the Malfoys, but it's not as, you know, cut and dry as, you know, they're just any old Death Eaters because they do go through some sort of interesting dynamics with the Dark Lord. Speaking of choices, do we know why Voldemort chooses Malfoy for this incredibly monumental task? I mean, I, I th- was it just because he was at Hogwarts and he needed a kid <laughs> to do it? Yeah, like, I, I guess. guess I don't know why he wouldn't ask Snape for the beginning unless he still really wasn't sure that he could trust Snape. Um, you can trust Malfoy? Uh. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Because Snape clearly knew what Malfoy was doing, and Voldemort knew that Snape knew. So if he were going to stop him, he could have done that. So yeah, I don't know. Anyways, let's go ahead and move on to most iconic lines. Uh, Dana, what are some of your most iconic lines? Um, I don't have... I actually don't have many. Again, I think that there are like a lot of funny moments in this film, but I don't, I don't know that any of them have kind of lived on as like being particularly quotable or anything. One that I do really love, though, is um, when Hermione's like, she's only interested in you because she thinks yeah. you're the chosen one. And then Harry's like, but, but I, I am, am the, the chosen, chosen one. one. <laughs> and I think it's also really funny because... Ramil Devane is so random. Like we like didn't really like know her. Yeah. And just like Harry is just like kind of like so down. He's like, ooh, a girl likes me. And well, I like, mean, <laughs> go for it, dude. Why yeah. not? <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought I thought that one was funny. How about you? Um, yeah, I have that one. And the only other two I want to mention are both when Harry is more or less high on liquid luck. And the first one is when he interacts with Slughorn for the first time and he's like, all right, I'm going to go and uh, meet Hagrid. And um, Slughorn goes, Harry. And, <laughs> and Harry goes, sir. <laughs> and he's like, you can't be out alone. And he's like, well, then by all means, come along. And it's just the the inflection that I think this is like the last time that I'm actually impressed by Daniel Radcliffe as an actor in these movies and it's so funny. The other one is when um, Hagrid says that the giant spiders are terribly misunderstood creatures, <laughs> probably because of their eyes. And then Harry goes, not to mention their pincers. <laughs> and he kind of like makes this little face. I, it's a great line. Um, those are some of the funniest lines in the movies for me. Yeah, the whole sequence when Harry's on the liquid luck, I think 
is the most hilarious part of the movie and maybe of any of the movies, yeah. honestly. And it feels like not only is Harry having a good time, but it feels like you sort of alluded to that Daniel Radcliffe is having fun and you've sort of really lost that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, he gets to kind of do something different here and this seems fun for him. And we've seen that now, you know, Daniel Radcliffe has done some kind of like rom-coms and he's done some more comedic roles. And I think that he actually seems to be really enjoying that space. So it sort of makes sense that that he would have been having a good time. You also touched on just the idea of inflection in speech. And I feel like I would be remiss. I do have my only other thing under most iconic lines is just the way that Alan Rickman hits consonants is just so insane. It's I love it. <laughs> but just the way that he drags out his words, I wonder, you know, how much of that he was coached into doing versus his own just interpretation of the character. But he just is an amazing Snape. And I'm so glad that um, we were able to to finish out the series with him. Because um, he did he did pass away a few years after yeah. the franchise ended. And I, I can't imagine what they would have done if he had if he had passed away during when the films were still coming out, because I don't see how you could have made these last few movies without him. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. He's he's great. Every single one of his lines is like him hamming it up to 11, which works so well as the character of Snape. Uh, let's go ahead and do Potter problems for Half-Blood Prince. Dana. Um, okay, so my first one is the question of where has Cormac McLaggen been for the past five years? <laughs> or or Lavender. Yeah, like, li- like literally where? Because we know, like, don't we know all of the Gryffindors? Yeah. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, here's this other the transfer one. transfer student. Yeah. Um, so I've, that's just confusing to me because all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's kind of kind of important, but he came out of nowhere. Um, you already alluded to this. It's not even really like a nitpick. It's just a general issue with the movie. But the Harry Ginny relationship is just so unbelievable in a literal sense. It's just it's so stale. Mm. It's physically cringy for me to watch. People seem so awkward around each other and be supposed to believe that they are like meant to be and that they're in love because it's always just like Ginny. Harry, like, you look sad, kiss, and then yeah. like, the scene is over. The scene at Christmas with them when she, like, sits next to him on the couch and offers him a pastry, and then Harry bites it, and he takes a mouse-sized bite of the pastry. <laughs> yeah. We were both like, why is the bite so small? <laughs> yeah. it's so weird. And I mean, I do think that Harry, in general, would be awkward in a relationship, so I'm sure some of that is people trying to harness that like teen awkward energy, yeah. but it is the wrong type of awkward in these yeah. movies. Like those couples that are awkward and stuff are still cute or you still understand why they're together or something. Mm-hmm. And I think a really good example of that, maybe not a good example because they're adults, but they're supposed to be kids is like Gwen Stacy and um, Peter Parker and the Amazing Spider-Mans. They are a little goofy and awkward their interactions but you can tell that they have a chemistry and that's so missing here yeah there's it's completely devoid of chemistry and of charisma to the awkwardness and yeah it's hard to watch and my last one is i just think that the unbreakable vow i think is kind of hilarious honestly (laughs) like that it's just like pinky promise but you'll die (laughs) and i've never thought of it like that that's good like and and 
again, so I feel like a lot of my qualms that I bring up throughout the movies is when something is used one time and like never again, or it's not mentioned until really late in, and it's like, oh, there's this concept that we haven't told you about. But like, people should just be making a, people Liquid make luck. unbreakable yeah. vows all the time. Oh. Yeah. Well, I was actually that is another one that I have. Um, was just why don't they use Liquid Luck more? I know it's hard to make, but like Harry could have just taken that and gone to fight Voldemort. But why don't they make people take the Unbreakable Vow more often? Like when there should be no question of anyone's loyalty ever. If you can just, I mean, I understand why we don't do this. Like you know, we don't be like you can't break your promise or I kill you. But when the stakes are this high and people are willing to make it about this one thing, I don't understand kind of how this was the one thing that got the Unbreakable Vow. Much like I don't understand why Harry um, taking the Liquid Luck when he did is the only time that he did that. Right, yeah. You'd think that at least Voldemort would be doing all sorts of unbreakable vows Mm -hmm. all the time. And also, it doesn't seem like there's a downside for Narcissa Mm -hmm. with the unbreakable vow. Right. Right? Like, is it that they both die? No, no. I don't think that she has to have a downside. Like, I think that he he is just making... It's not like a a divorce, you know, where, like, they both, (laughs) you know, are dissolving a vow or something. It's like he would just be breaking his vow to her. Yeah, so you should just be like, make the unbreakable vow that you'll do your best to show up at 8 p.m. for our date. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, great nitpicks. I don't have any other m- major ones. I will say that it is a really cool scene when Ron gets to celebrate him being a badass on the Quidditch pitch and, you know, the the idea of Harry pretending to give him liquid luck. I think all of that's really good. Yeah. And the the celebration scene is c- cinematic and everything. But guess what? Ron not letting in any goals doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. This is a Quidditch, Quidditch rant again. Was over. <laughs> Ron could have let every single one of those goals go in. But as long as Harry caught the snitch before he let 15 fucking goals in, <laughs> they would have won anyways. So uh, I'll keep it at that. Quidditch is dumb. Um... One last nitpick, I'm sorry, <laughs> is the Room of Requirements. Um, it feels like in Order of the Phoenix, the Room of Requirements has a very strong moral bias in that it won't reveal itself to the narcs, but it will reveal itself to when they need a room to practice in Dumbledore's army. And you could argue that the requirement for the narcs is to find the room, so the room <laughs> should also open up for them, right? And then it's like, okay, well, maybe you know it's only for good people. But then... The room of requirement opens up for Malfoy to let yeah. him use his magical cabinet or whatever that goes to Narnia. So, like, <laughs> it clearly has ambiguous morals. So, I'm not totally sure what's going on here. Same same thing in the, the the very last book. The room of requirement opens up for both Harry to get the diadem or whatever, but then also for Malfoy and Crab and Goyle to set the room on fire. Yeah. So, I don't know. Um, very ambiguous set of morals that yeah. this uh, room of requirement has. Dana, what are some of your favorite moments from Half-Blood Prince? So we already have talked out the the Felix Felicia scene, so I won't touch on that again, but that's, I think, one of the best moments. A smaller moment is I love when Harry tries to sectum sempra Snape, and Snape is like, you fucking thought, and like it's just <laughs> like, you cannot do that to me. Um, and again, it doesn't quite have the hit that it has in the book where you like understand more of the, the impact of Snape being the Half-Blood Prince, but knowing what we know from the book, I think it still slaps. Um, yeah, how do you go about creating a spell? Yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> He's like, you dare use my spell? Like, 
Will you have to register some words? With, uh, I genuinely maybe he, have like, no discover idea. it. Like I don't know how he would have discovered. You know, but like maybe it was like somehow like I don't know, like lying dormant, and he found it in a book, and like brought, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then finally, though, speaking of the book, is I love the little moment of Harry and Ron fighting over the books. Um, yeah. <laughs> when they they join potions late because they find out that um they didn't think that they would be eligible to take potions this year. But now they can because Slughorn is teaching it and they open the cabinet and there's one really nice new book and there's one really dilapidated one. And Harry and Ron look at each other and then look at the books and then there's kind of a mad grab for who gets the nice one. And I think it's funny because just like like memory of like being in school and like when a teacher would be passing out books and a lot of times that would like kind of happen is like there were some (laughs) new editions of the books and there were some old ones and you're always like, oh, I hope I get a new one. It's also, I think, kind of a dick move for Harry not to let Ron have the one nice book when Harry's always gotten new stuff and Ron's always gotten used. <laughs> but it works out. Um, I mean, to the extent that it works out, but it works yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a very good, like, humanizing moment in the series. And yeah. I think a lot of the funny parts of this movie are humanizing moments, mm-hmm. right? Like just kids acting like kids. Yeah. Which is, which is good. Uh, we've had all my favorite moments except for the love potion scene with Ron. Oh, I think yeah. it's hilarious. Um, one of my favorite parts is when Harry kind of dismisses that, you know, he's gaga over lavender or whatever. And he takes the box of chocolate and throws it at Harry. <laughs> and Harry's just like, what the what the hell? And and he's yelling at him and he's like, I'm in love with Ramilda. Do you think she do you think she knows I exist? And all of this stuff. I think that whole scene is uh, like a comedic goldmine. Yeah, I think that part's really funny. Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and take a quick break here. And when we return, we'll start talking about The Deathly Hollows Part 1. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. All right, we are back and we are talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part One. These are dark times, there is no denying. Tell me where he is. Our world has faced no greater threat than it does today. But you can't fight this war on your own, Mr. Porter. He's too strong. Dana, what are your overall thoughts on the film? So this is an interesting departure in the series because so far we've had the sort of episodic another year at Hogwarts situation and that ends here. And we're sort of out here in the world and we're watching it being torn apart. Even for the muggles, we're seeing how Voldemort taking over is really affecting everyone in at least Great Britain or at least in London. Um, The film goes zero to 60 real fast, um, just like the book, because we have some deaths like right out of the gate. Um, Mm -hmm. which sets up the understanding that throughout the rest of the Deathly Hallows, both the movies, that a lot of people are going to die, considering we lose both Hedwig and Moody, just like that. Um, Splitting this installment in two 
regardless of how you feel about it, allows them to spend more time yeah. on unfolding the plot, which I think is important in this chapter, at least, which is so heavily centered kind of around the waiting game, kind of, of, you know, the frustration of how it long and how hard it is for them to find the Horcruxes and this feeling of hopelessness that all these people are dying around them. And I think that removing the characters from Hogwarts is yes. also doing something really interesting where you can sort of imagine this story just as about people without the magic and see it on a more human level. Like with these this young kind of band of rebels taking to the woods and listening to these names being read out over the radio of these people being killed by a totalitarian takeover. And it could almost be about, you know, like a real coup, just, you know, mm -hmm. absent of magic. One th Another thing that I'll say is that there's a lot more artistic risk taking in this movie than we've seen in a while, I think, maybe since um, Prisoner of Azkaban. And you feel the presence of directorial autonomy, I think, a bit more. For example, in the polyjuice scenes, I think that you had to make a lot of choices about how to do those. And I think that they end up working. Also, I think one of the biggest artistic risks in the whole franchise of the movies is the animation of The Tale of the Three Brothers, which um, could have been really hit or miss. I think I think it works. Um, all in all, um, I do like this movie. Um, I think you can, again, see uh, choices being made and they're not perfect, but I think that it feels less like a giant book that was edited down and more like a work that was intentionally crafted to portray themes and relationships. You took most of the words just right out of my mouth. I think I completely agree with almost everything that you said. Um, as you mentioned, this is the only film that does not take place at Hogwarts. Hogwarts is never seen in this movie. I think the closest we get is the Death Eaters stopping the Hogwarts Express mm -hmm. to look for Harry. And as you're saying, I think that this is that's a really necessary aspect of this film because we are no longer being protected by Hogwarts. The characters are literally without shelter and they're fending for themselves. And um, you you kind of also mentioned this already, but I, I think that this movie has a very boots on the ground feel to it. It mm -hmm. feels almost like Saving Private Ryan. And I'm sure people hearing that are probably like, <laughs> you're kidding me, right? But I just mean that this is a group of characters going from one place to another in a wartime or almost post-apocalyptic mm -hmm. road trip-esque of a movie. And I think this film just has an atmosphere to it. And I'm surprised that it's that so many people didn't like this movie because I really, really like this movie. Um, I think that atmosphere makes it really effective despite it being really slow and mm -hmm. more or less needless, I would say. Um, I think a good chunk of this is just people camping yeah <laughs> and it's just you know it's it's just interactions and it's a lot of these character moments which mm -hmm. i think for me are, are really great and really good payoff for seven films or six films i guess a payoff but it does mean that you could more or less skip this movie and go straight to the finale and not really be that much at a loss mm -hmm. but i think this movie has so many specific moments between characters that i think are so beautiful that i think wrap things up perfectly and i really love this movie um there's some really good landscape shots too this movie is gorgeous to look at i know you have a meme of me saying <laughs> that about every single movie but what i will say is that uh the half-blood prince is an ugly fucking movie <laughs> that is an ugly ass movie and this one is gorgeous yeah i think that that was really well put and i think that what you said about how it shows characters and relationships is especially important 
going into the next movie where we don't get any of yeah. that. <laughs> so we're almost if we if we see if we look at the Deathly Hallows as one entity, we've sort of front loaded all of the kind of like emotional climax of this film, kind of not even climax, but just high point of how much we see it happens here and that's sort of setting us up to go full battle mode next movie and i do agree with what you said about you know it feeling almost like a war movie like it Mm -hmm. you know i think that it makes sense to think about it that way yeah and i mean something else that's a part of this is that i've always found and especially on this rewatch i was surprised by how this series is not at all an action series Mm -hmm. there are some thrilling moments But when there's action, it's actually pretty messy. I don't think it's particularly well choreographed or anything. Mm -hmm. It's not like superhero movies that are usually pretty coherent. Mm -hmm. I think like the action scene of them flying through London with all the different stuff, it's a cool scene, but it definitely does not fit with the tone of this series. And it feels like a little wonky that Harry is like upside down in the tunnel of London and running on the side of the bus or whatever. All of that stuff doesn't really work. And I think what really works about these movies are these impactful character moments. And I think right off the bat, you get the opening scene of Hermione obliviating her parents mm-hmm. and just the orchestral swells of that music in the background doing that. It is very much like, no, this is serious now. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this movie does a really good job at setting up for a potential theoretically satisfying conclusion in the next movie. Um, so yeah, again, I, I don't really have anything to say other than positives about this film. Yeah. And I think, I think that you, you're much better at noticing than I am of how sort of action is, how, how a movie is doing at portraying its action scenes. And that's something that I feel like I didn't have a good gauge of noticing until I started watching movies with you. But then when you point it out to me, I, I will mm-hmm. notice like, oh wait, yeah, this, this doesn't look good or this does look really messy. And I think almost the reason that I never noticed those things before is because so many action scenes I do think are shot kind of badly and are so choppy. And so I was so used to tuning out during a lot of action scenes <laughs> yeah. because I'm just like, I, I can't tell what's going on. Um, but I think I, I do enjoy like when you, when you pointed out to me, then it, it's good juxtaposition because now I do notice when things do action well. Yeah. And I think having seen that now, yeah, I do think that these movies don't because I do think it's really hard <laughs> to tell what's going on. This movie, again, I don't think relies on those action scenes too heavily, so it's right. fine. But the next movie ultimately will rely on a lot of kind of fighting, and I don't think that it handles it that well. Yeah. Um, I realized that right before you said that, I had just said that I have nothing to say but about I have nothing to say but positive things about this movie. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say some negative things now, so I don't know what the hell I was talking about. Um So firstly, I think that this is likely a byproduct of this being the final book and therefore being the one that I most recently read and especially having so recently read the book to when this movie came out, right? But I do think there are a lot of important moments that are missing from this film. Mm -hmm. Also in in part two, but in this one where I feel like you are giving all of these closures and obviously they can't give closure to every single character – but I've, I've said this to you before, I think that not having a closure scene with the Dursleys, which I think is a really interesting part of the first book, that lack of closure there, I think, is really frustrating for me in this movie. Um, they also cut out really important characters, in my opinion, like Teddy, mm-hmm. um, Lupin, and uh, Remus. Er, 
<laughs> Fanfic. Yeah, he had a he had a half werewolf baby with himself. Uh, no, sorry, um, Lupin and Tonks baby, and then the fact that that becomes Harry's godson, and this kind of parallel between mm-hmm. Teddy and Harry and Sirius, and all of this stuff that I think is really thematically beautiful is kind of missing in this movie. So that does definitely bum me out. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think another along those lines thing that gets left out, and I didn't even 100% remember how it happened, but I knew that it was in the books and I I didn't know where, but Wormtail's death were not shown. Yeah, did you look this up? Yes. Okay, (laughs) because I don't remember at all what happened. So when Voldemort comes back to life in, um, in Goblet of Fire, Wormtail is obviously pivotal in making that happen. And Voldemort remakes his hand. He makes him a silver hand. And when he does that, he says, may your loyalty never waver again. And then so at the beginning of Deathly Hallows, when Harry, or not the beginning, um, but when later in Deathly Hallows, when Harry is trying to escape from Malfoy Manor, Wormtail um, kind of lets him go because Harry says, you're going to kill me after I saved your life. And Wormtail kind of falters and like releases his grip on Harry. And then the silver hand that Voldemort has made Wormtail on the condition of his loyalty suffocates him. Um, oh, wow. And I think that that's like kind of important that, you know, Wormtail sort of pays back his sort of debt to Harry for not killing him. And we just don't see that. And I, I think that that could have been a really quick scene because this movie, again, fam- these movies famously don't really dwell on their death. So I don't know why you couldn't just have a quick you know, Wormtail letting Harry go moment. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's a good point. Uh, You mentioned that these films don't dwell on their death. We've talked about that before, but I do want to talk about it again here and probably again in part two. (laughs) You can't really escape it. Yeah, so I I think that the deaths are completely botched in these last few films, um, but specifically in this one. Like, so, so I have a list here of the only deaths that had an emotional impact to me in these films are Cedric, Dumbledore. I think that death is actually quite good because mm-hmm. it's the ending of that movie and they end with the lights in the sky, mm-hmm. kind of like a, I don't know, a U2 concert or something. <laughs> but then, uh, and the death of Dobby. And I do think that's partially because all three of those films are like the the final deaths in the film. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of at the end and then after the movie, you're like, wow, let me sit with that for yeah. a second. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's part of it. But with all these other deaths, there's no time to grieve the losses in the film. And I do think that something that we haven't talked about yet is that this is kind of due to the nature of the medium and kind of the efficiency that movies have to have with their storytelling. Mm -hmm. Because if you stopped for five minutes every time somebody died in this movie, these movies would be three hours long. Right. But when you read that Hedwig dies in the book, especially in the first chapter, you can stop reading. Yeah. And you can sit there and say, shit, I I can't believe that Hedwig is dead and Mm -hmm. I can't believe she sacrificed him. Or herself. Uh, but like having the characters do that is definitely a waste of time. That's true. And I so like as much as I hate how the deaths are handled, I, I do think that there's something to acknowledge here that like you can't just linger for so long. But but I agree that especially in the second film of this Deathly Hollows thing, mm-hmm. that they do need at least some moments of stopping and like reckoning with that. I, I don't know. I, yeah. I feel like I'm being a broken record here, but no, it no, is I one think, of the most frustrating things I, in these movies. I think movies. that that's a really good point um, that that I hadn't thought about in those terms of, 
of how you have control over the pace at which you read something, but you don't really have control over the pace at which you watch a movie. If you're watching at home, you can pause the movie, but you know, I think, I don't think a lot of people, you know, pause a movie to process a death, (laughs) but, and so, so I do agree with that, but at the same time, there are movies where characters die, not at the end. And I feel like it's done better or, you know, and there are movies that have to handle a lot of deaths. And I think of, you know, a very comparable franchise when we think about Harry Potter is Lord of the Rings. And, you know, in Return of the King, we have a lot of characters die. And in Two Towers, we have a lot of characters die. And I mean, even in Fellowship, I guess it's towards the end when Boromir dies. But if we think about things like that, where you have non-main characters die and semi-main characters die, and it, it feels really impactful. And I don't even think that it has to be portrayed in dialogue. I think that Lord of the Rings does a good job at, and I don't want to go off on a huge tangent here, but at even just showing facial expressions yeah. and and just, you know, cries of grief. And I don't think it takes that much time. You know, I think that you can invest in just some glances or, you know, just some emotions. And I, I don't think that you have to spend a lot of time on it. That being said, Lord of the Rings movies are very, very long. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like, like the Hedwig death in this is kind of sad, um, but I do remember it like absolutely devastating me in the books. Oh, absolutely. Hedwig is just such a pure character mm-hmm. and her instantly dying like that is just <laughs> vicious. Um, but yeah, I, I I wish that there was some sort of grief from Harry or just something like, I can't believe she's gone or like, let me send an owl and then like looking at Harry, like fuck your owl's dead. Yeah. You know, some, I don't know. Um, but yeah, let's let's not dwell too much on this because I think we're going to have a ton of problems with the deaths <laughs> in, in part two. So um, before moving on to most iconic lines, one thing that I do want to give credit to this movie for doing is I think it uses Ron really well mm-hmm. in this movie. The The best use of Ron since maybe the Sorcerer's Stone where he's just kind of like a lifeline for Harry. Um, I, I do think it's kind of frustrating when he turns pissy, but I do think that it's better and it makes more sense that he turns pissy here than mm-hmm. in the Goblet of Fire, yeah. which makes no sense. But I like that Ron in this situation is kind of the everyman. Mm-hmm. And he's in a wartime movie. He's the one that's, I've got a wife back home that I, you know, just one more week of war yeah. and then I get to go back. <laughs> so it's actually kind of surprising that Ron doesn't die in this series. But him listening to the radio, I think, is a really effective way of setting the mood. And it it really makes you... F- understand the seriousness of what's going on in a way that is kind of lost on the fact that like we don't know anything about Hermione's parents and Harry's parents are famously dead yeah so um I I really like that it gives stakes here yeah I think that there's a juxtaposition almost to the fact that Harry has almost nothing to lose yeah and Ron has so much to lose and I think that part of Ron's frustration with Harry is he tr- he tries and I think fails to be able to communicate to him like I know that your life is hard and I know that what you're dealing with is hard but just because I have a family who loves me doesn't make this easy in some ways that makes this really hard like I'm leaving them to be here with you and any day I could hear that they're dead and I think that that's an interesting um you sort of dyad to have yeah and the one other thing that I think Ron does really well and something that these movies need to do more of is that there is a scene when Harry tries to leave the burrow to go off and look for Horcruxes on his own before the wedding. And Ron stops him. 
Ron comes out and he says, look, man, don't do this alone. You, you, you can't go now. And I think having Ron do that instead of Hermione is just so much better because it, it shows that Ron has something to give. Mm-hmm. And it shows that Ron and, Her- and Harry are best friends. They mm-hmm. keep saying that over and over again. And in a lot of the movies, sometimes it's like, are you? Yeah, we don't really see it that much. But in this movie, with that, you feel that. You feel like Ron knows Harry. Ron knows that he's going to go by himself. but he And he knows that he doesn't want to be around a wedding. But he's like, no, dude, listen. You need other people around you. And I, I think that's a really good moment that the second part of this <laughs> book has nothing to do with. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I really love Ron in this is my thesis. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that he is, as you've mentioned, sidelined for a lot of these movies and he gets a little bit of a heyday here. So that's nice. Yeah. Uh, you want to go ahead and move on to most iconic lines? Sure. So um, I think I don't have a ton, but one that I, I love and I remember loving even in the books is after George loses his ear yeah. and they're all kind of tending to him and they're like, George, like, are you OK? How are you? And Fred comes in and George is like, I feel saint like. And they're like, what? I'm holy. Yeah. Because <laughs> he has a hole in his ear. <laughs> um, oh, thanks for explaining that. Yeah, to me. you're welcome. And then just another it's not really a line, but just a a, a piece of little monologue that i love is when ron comes back after he's been gone for so long and you know he saves harry and harry kind of like quickly gets over the fact that ron laughed and understands and then when ron has to face hermione and he's just like hey (laughs) and hermione just loses it on him and she's just kind of going on a whole tirade tirade and they're just kind of all talking over each other but i think it's just like a really just funny moment of like you see all the love that's there even though it's complicated by you know what they've had to do to each other and they've had to hurt each other but you see how much the three of them love each other in that moment those are both of mine so <laughs> this will be a quick a quick segment um yeah i, I think it, in that latter scene that you're talking about the my favorite part of that is when ron's like do you think hermione will ever forgive me and harry just says well, just keep talking about that ball of light touching your heart oh, and she'll yeah. come around. I think that's a really funny moment. Um, but yeah, there aren't too many iconic lines in this movie, again, because it's a very like slow and meditative movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can go ahead and move on to Potter problems. For the first time, I don't have that many nitpicks. A lot of my nitpicks are just, I wish they had included that from the book, which are the worst kind of nitpicks, I'll <laughs> acknowledge. So I'll throw it to you first, Dana. Okay. Um, first one is just with regard to the wedding, that maybe during a nationwide terror siege, it's a bad idea to have every important person in your society like in the same place at once, where yeah. every terrorist can teleport to at a moment's notice, which they do. Um, <laughs> I just think that was poor planning. I I also on that note of the the Death Eaters uh, teleporting there, I feel like in the movies. The rules around apparating are never explained, and I think that in the books, we get those, and we also get in um, Half-Blood Prince, the characters are actually, we see them learn how to apparate themselves, and we learn more about apparition. Yeah, that's definitely something that they should have included in the movies, like them actually learning how to do it, because mm-hmm. it does come out of nowhere, and, and you can kind of fill in the gaps, but I do think like a set of rules being explained while they learn it would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that this movie doesn't explain that I think would have been an important and quick thing for them to do is explain why 
the rest of the kids are still going back to Hogwarts because you might wonder why are people still sending their kids here to this like terrorist occupied school? Got to get an education. Now. Yeah, but it's it, the system. It, it is they are being um, legally compelled to go and the parents are just scared, I guess. Um, and basically, I think the only alternative would have been to, you know, smuggle your family out of the country. So, I mean, it's it's still kind of not great that they're there, but it's it's not just that the parents were like, got to go back to school. And I think that the movie almost doesn't do anything to lead you <laughs> to believe anything other than that. Um, yeah. But do you want to share your your leave outs? Yeah, um, there's a there's a moment in the first chapter when Hagrid's motorbike starts to crash and they start to plummet and Hagrid is knocked out at this point. And Harry actually uses the Wingardium Leviosa spell to stop the motorcycle from crashing. And I loved that in the book because that is the first spell that you're introduced to mm-hmm. and the first spell that they learn. And I think that's beautiful storytelling, kind mm-hmm. of like full circle. So I would have really liked to see that in the movie. Um, we get one line from Tonks who says, wait till you hear the news. And that's the closest that we get to learning about Teddy which again, I already said is, I think, a very important character mm-hmm. and also gets kind of mentioned in the second movie out of nowhere. So I, I really think, I, I know there's a deleted scene, I believe, in the second part that has Re- uh, Remus telling Harry about Teddy or something. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, there's a scene at Floor and Bill's wedding where Hermione and Victor Crumb share a dance. I think that would have oh, been great yeah. to see. Not really thematically necessary, but kind of a bum that they cut that out. There's another one where there's another deleted scene that we watched last night, actually, where they explicitly lay out why the Horcruxes are important to Voldemort. They lay out um, how many there are left, and they also lay out why they can't say his name because it's been like tapped or mm-hmm. whatever. And that's how they use to track people is when people say Voldemort. And I think that's a ton of really important information mm-hmm. for this movie and the next. So kind of bummed out that they cut that out. Um, and then they also don't at all explain splinching in this movie. She, Hermione says that Ron has been splinched, but there's no explanation for what that means. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, oh, splinching seems bad. Yeah, it's like, oh, she just made up a word. Okay. Um, so all of those things, I think, would have added a little bit of more context to this movie. But again, these are really bad nitpicks because they're just things that were in the book. So I'm I'm okay with this movie. Mm-hmm. We're on good terms. Yeah. Favorite moments, Dana, from part one? So I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I do like the um, the Polyjuice scene into into Harry. Um, and I think that the Polyjuice scenes in this movie in general yeah. are good when they later break into the ministry as well. And they have these different actors um, playing Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And they do use like our actors' voices, so it's not them speaking per se. But, but I think that they do a really good job of sort of embodying yeah, yeah the body language of our characters and they're just kind of random people but i think that um i think that it works really well um another moment that i like is i t- and i did tell you i i find it really awkward but i do like it is the harry hermione dance scene yeah. it's just a nice moment of you know everything is going wrong and the world is so dark but they have each other and they have this music and they're gonna sort of make the best of their situation and i think it's really sweet yeah, I will say as a kid, it's kind of confusing because as a kid, you see two adults at this point basically dancing. You're like, oh, they're in love. <laughs> and then 
immediately after that, you get that really weird scene of them like making out oh, naked yeah. as Ron it, it, for Ron's vision or whatever. So as a kid, it is sort of like, wait a minute, do they like each other now? And obviously it's it's Harry and Hermione sharing a moment of friendship. And mm-hmm. that's very clear as an adult. But <laughs> I, I do remember as a kid being like, huh, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I forgot about the the vision Ron has of Harry and Hermione making out, which is like weirdly like the most sexual moment in all of the movies. And it's not even real, but it's I don't know why it's in there. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the interview where Emma Watson is like, yeah, it's kind of like making out with your brother. It yeah, wasn't I don't fun. know. I, I thought that, that she said I remember her saying that about Ron, I thought, but I, I forgot even that she I forgot that she and Harry would have kissed yeah. because it's not like, quote unquote, real. Speaking of kind of um, Hermione, I do my last thing I will mention is when Bellatrix wants to interrogate Hermione girl to girl. I thought about the idea of do you, do any of these movies pass the Bechdel test? Because you would almost huh. think so. Because like I don't think of like oh these are for boys or whatever. Or, like not that you know I view media in that reductive of a way, but. But I was like, wait, like, do we do we ever really get girls just like talking to each other like ever in this series? No, you're right. And isn't that kind of sad? Like, I guess sometimes like Harry or I mean, Hermione shits on Professor Trelawney in the third book. Yeah. So maybe there's talking to boys about it. Like, you know, Um, that's just so. But I just like in. In light of this fact that I realized that this never happens where women are just conversing, when Bellatrix says that she wants to interrogate Hermione girl to girl, I'm like, okay, okay. What a beautiful moment. <laughs> what a beautiful this is moment of women. celebrating womanhood. Yeah. Wow, what a feminist piece. Um, yeah, we've talked about all my other favorite moments, other than there's the scene at the very beginning of this when um Voldemort is kind of torturing the the professor of muggle studies. Oh, yeah. And he Avada Kedavra's her and then has Nagini eat her. And I think it's almost funny that when the snake, the big ass snake gets gets on the table, you can tell all the other Death Eaters (laughs) are like, this is gross. Yeah. I'm actually disturbed as a Death Eater. I'm disturbed (laughs) that this big snake is going to eat this woman. And when you disturb a Death Eater, I think, I don't know. I just thought it was a really funny moment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, all, all the all the other favorite moments we've already touched on. So we can go ahead and move on to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part Two. Come on, Tom. Let's finish this the way we started. Together. Only I can live forever. So before I throw it to you, Dana, I I already do kind of know what your overall thoughts on this film is. What I thought would be interesting is to ask you what you think the Rotten Tomato score of this movie is and then compare that to the Rotten Tomato scores of the other movies. 
So what do you think? And okay, with let's just go out and or let's just start by saying Rotten Tomato scores are not the end all be all. It's just a really easy metric to kind of get a general sense of the critical consensus that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean the movie is good if it has a positive Rotten Tomato score, but it does mean that generally speaking, people are giving it positive reviews, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. With that caveat, what do you think the Rotten Tomato score of this movie is? So I'm a little worried that you are asking me this because you know I'm going to be upset by it. (laughs) (laughs) And you know how I feel about this movie. So that means I think that the score is going to be high. Okay. I'm going to say that the score is a 90. Okay. And what do you think the highest Rotten Tomato score is for a movie? And which movie do you think that is from the series? Um, is is this one the highest one? I'm not telling you. Well, that was my gu- my guess is this one. Okay, with ninety percent. Yes. Okay, I'm gonna go in dis- uh, ascending order. So the lowest is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One. What? With seventy seven percent. That's not that low, but no. th- like. Weird no, so, that that's the lowest one. Yeah, so all of these movies are certified fresh. Um, and so at, at a certain point, it's kind of ridiculous to compare them, but we're going to do that anyways, because <laughs> that's this podcast's MO. Uh, number two, Order of the Phoenix with 78%. Mm-hmm. Number three, Chamber of Secrets with 82%. Nope, sorry. Number three would be Sorcerer's Stone with 81%. Mm-hmm. Number four, Chamber of Secrets with 82%. Number five, Half-Blood Prince with 84%. Number six, Goblet of Fire with 88%. Uh, Number seven, Prisoner of Azkaban with 90%. And the highest rated movie, Deathly Hollows Part 2 with 96%. That's insane to me. Yeah. So let's go ahead and throw it to you. What are your overall (laughs) thoughts of this film, Dana? So, okay. So we watched this movie just last night. So it's very fresh in my brain. And for context, this I think this is the might be the only the second time I've seen this film all the way through. And the first of those was at the midnight premiere in 2011. Shout out to parents everywhere that to give carpool rides full of children home from the movie theaters <laughs> at 2.30 a.m. on July 15th, 2011. Um, I do think that this is something that those of us who experienced these books and movies as they came out will always remember Um, as something that just, you know, so many different social groups and age groups came together for these midnight premieres, and we were so excited to see these things. And I remember feeling so emotional that this was ending. And I remember when the credits were rolling and my friends started to stand up to leave, and I was like, no, we have to wait until the very, very, very end because, like, when we walk out of this theater, it's over. And I had, I was so emotional about that, about the idea that this was going to be over. So this was before you saw the movie? No, this was this was after the movie oh, was okay, over. Okay. The first time I saw it. But the first time I saw it, I was waiting. You know, it's... I think the first time you see these movies, you're not watching them as movies. You know, like you're not able almost to see it as a movie. You're seeing it as a chapter. Um, mm-hmm. And... And I think that at the time I was I was too emotional to be able to sort of assess how it was as a movie. I was also like what like 15, 16. Um, with that being said, I you know I've I've watched parts of this again when it's been on or in college when people had it on, and so I I knew going into it that I wasn't going to really love it as a movie from having seen it, like little bits and pieces of it. But I just came in wanting to feel something, really anything connected to how I felt in 2011 at the pinnacle of Harry Potter hype. And this movie did not give me anything to feel. It feels so devoid of character. I think there are so few conversations, 
so few heartfelt moments for a, for a conclusion to this epic saga. Everything feels rushed and impersonal. And if you're going to split a final movie into two movies, which for some reason this franchise like invented and now we have to suffer through that for every <laughs> big thing <laughs> yeah, now. I think that's mostly over now, yeah. but so um, is the young adult adaptation. Yeah. But there's there's no focus on anything for long enough to, to feel connected to any of the drama. You're just like, oh, mm-hmm. look, Neville's fighting. Oh, look, Fred is dead. Oh, look, oh, look, oh, look. And it, it really feels like they're just going through the motions. It feels phoned in. I don't know if it's the acting. I think it has to a little bit be the acting, but it doesn't feel like David Yates was even trying to get anything out of them. So there's not even really a question of does it hold up on its own, which it doesn't. But I, I just think it would be impossible to care about this movie if you hadn't seen any of the others. Like you would, I, w- I was bored watching it last night. Um, and I think that it's just, you know, you just want to feel this nostalgia and it's just not there. Wow. Okay. That was <laughs> pretty damning. Um, I actually was very disappointed the first time I saw this movie. I also saw it at midnight. I actually saw it in when I was in Finland. So I saw it like two weeks early because it came out earlier mm-hmm. in Europe and I felt like such a badass because I got to see it early. Um, but yeah, I, I was so disappointed by this movie the first time I saw it for many of the same reasons that you are citing. It is, It feels very lifeless. It feels like everybody wants to just be done with it. And it feels like it's just going through the motions, exactly as you say. In a way, it feels almost like a live action Disney remake where it's just trying to hit the plot points that we know from the book in this case, but in the Disney remake, it's, oh, we have to have this scene because it was in the animated scene, even if it doesn't make sense in live action. Like in this, it's like, we have to have the scene of Molly Weasley saying, not my daughter, you bitch, Mm -hmm. to Bellatrix Lestrange, because people love it in the books, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. flow Mm -hmm. in the movie at all. So all of this stuff is a huge problem. Um, I don't think it's a bad movie like i can still find things to enjoy about it um positives like well we we can get to to more specific positives but i do think that there are parts of this movie that are good and i did enjoy it a little more being removed from the expectations that i had on that opening night but yeah i I, i'm super baffled by why there is near universal acclaim for this movie Mm -hmm. reading some of the like excerpts on wikipedia which is what i do for my research (laughs) but reading the excerpts from reviews is people just really really well-known critics just Mm -hmm. praising this thing like it's the peak of cinema or at least theatrical experience and i just i don't get it i i feel like so many things in this film are supposed to feel epic or thrilling or god forbid emotional but most (laughs) of them are just completely flat or even just like goofy yeah there are certain things that are supposed to feel badass but they're just silly and I I don't understand why people love this movie so much. It is so disappointing to me. Yeah, I am curious. What was the um, the environment in Finland surrounding the movie like? Was it comparable to here, or what's the relationship? Um, I mean, no, not at all. I, I do remember going opening night when the first book, or I mean, the last book came out, and mm-hmm. we like so I have like the British copy of that because mm-hmm. we had to go to an American bookstore in Finland to get it. So there's definitely. A, a feeling there and it it definitely was a relatively full theater for like finland mm-hmm. you know but it wasn't like everybody lining up and all of this stuff it's definitely much bigger here just as like culture in general mm-hmm. is bigger here than it is in some of these smaller european countries but um 
there definitely was an audience and i and i do even remember audience members laughing at pretty pivotal moments like when yeah. harry breaks the uh, the elder wand mm-hmm. in half people laughed or when voldemort is like cheering that mm-hmm. he's won people laughed because he's got a goofy laugh yeah. and like all of these little things yeah well cuz i wonder how much my my first viewing of this film is just associated more with just like the experience of going at midnight and being, you know, surrounded by so many people who were excited and people were dressed up. And I think that that shapes my experience maybe a lot more than yeah. the actual movie. Um, and I, I think about, you know, though, I didn't go at midnight, but, you know, I saw I saw Avengers Endgame in theaters on opening night. I saw um, Lord of the Rings Return of the King in theaters. And I think those are such good finales. And I, I could watch those again and again and still feel chills and I I don't think I was ever even connected as much to those things as I was to Harry Potter as a kid. And so it feels like such a, you know, a shortfall that we don't, we're not able to have that kind of, you know, goosebump experience watching this back and being like, uh, like, there's no, yeah. there's none of those Endgame's Return of the King moments where, you know, you just are like, oh, this is so epic. Or I just, I like, you just want to watch this one scene you know, there it's just it's just boring. Yeah, there there are a couple of those. Okay, I'm interested that, to hear about your your positives. Okay, uh, yeah, we can we can go into positives. One thing I will say before that though is just that I definitely don't envy the task of this film. Mm-hmm. And that's, we've talked, that's fair. We've talked a lot about how the start of this series is completely different from the end, and so much of this last movie relies on um, extraneous pieces coming together that they didn't necessarily think they needed to elaborate on when it was just the story of an orphan boy Mm -hmm. discovering magic. Yeah, that's true. So um, there there is some wiggle room there, but I think that is also kind of erased by the fact that you have a blueprint for a satisfying ending in the final book. I think Mm -hmm. that final book is very well written Mm -hmm. and does a really good job at concluding everything. So you still deserve some flack for botching this because you literally have the blueprint. Whereas Endgame or, I mean, Rise of Skywalker is not a good ending, but it's an ending that yeah, they had to come Yeah, notice I did up. not mention that. <laughs> yeah, but like there are these movies that have to end and they don't have anything to base off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that you mentioned, like of this never having a moment, it's kind of just go, go, go the whole time. It almost reminds me of as if, Avengers Endgame was just the last hour of that movie, which has virtually no character moments. Mm -hmm. But because you have the two hours before it of Mm -hmm. more or less nothing but character moments, you that movie feels complete. And I would be interested to see what a Deathly Hollows combined cut edited down to just things would be like. But again, I still do think that the last half of it would feel largely lifeless. Um, But okay, positives. I think that, like always, the production design is really great in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is fantastic. I think the not only do they have this kind of vocalized um, score of there's like a, a woman kind of hymning that's very a la Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. but just the music during the Battle of Hogwarts, I think it does give a sense of finality to the movie, which I think is, is really good. Um, there's a couple handful of moments that i think are good like when harry confronts snape i i did get chills from there and then when mcgonagall steps in front of harry to to stop snape that's mm-hmm. good um i think that one or two of the confrontations between harry and voldemort are decent 
And I think like there's a couple epic moments and like good CGI things like when when the visual effects of them putting the the barrier over Hogwarts and all the um, the Death Eaters shooting out those little bolts. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. And like seeing that on a big screen is probably beautiful. I don't remember it. But so there there are these little things that I think are definitely good. But yeah, I, I do largely agree that things more or less bother me from start to finish in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, of the things you've mentioned, I, I can get behind that a little bit. I, again, I don't think it's enough to change my feelings about the movie. But I, th I think that, you know, I, I have to say that the reason that I'm, of course, so disappointed is because of how much I love Harry Potter. And, you know, yeah. it's it's not like a and part of this is because, as you mentioned, they do have the book as the blueprint. But I, it's not like a Game of Thrones situation where, like, I think the end completely ruins everything that came before it. Right. It just it's just not a satisfying conclusion, but it doesn't like sort of like retcon other things as bad. That's a really good point, um, because Game of Thrones, absolutely the ending, more or less ruins the series for mm -hmm. me, um, because Game of Thrones is set up such that it's building to something, and it's not so much the individual moments that you're enjoying, but the the suspense of, what are we getting to? We're setting up, set mm -hmm. up, set up, set up. And I don't think that many of the books in the series actually do that much to set up a finale mm -hmm. here the, towards the end there's a lot of setup but those first couple movies and even the middle ones to an extent are standalone adventures in mm -hmm. the way that game of thrones is not right and obviously tough because it's movies to television which is a very hard comparison but yeah i think that's a really good point yeah and i did say at one point harry's like running through the castle and there's some like falling rocks and i was like what if this just had like a little Cersei Jamie moment. What if Harry just died? Which is what Game of Thrones does. Like I know, you know, Cersei and Jamie aren't to Game of Thrones as Harry is to Harry Potter, but um I'll I'll get off this this derailment of uh complaining about Game of Thrones because everyone's heard enough about that. Moving right along. Yeah, this movie also has the rare critique from me that it should be at least 15 to 20 minutes longer. Yes. And that's a really weird thing to say in a time where I feel like Almost every other movie that I see could be 30 minutes shorter. Yeah. Every time we find out a movie is short, we're like so excited to find a movie that's like an hour, 45 minutes. We're like, yes, let's watch that right now. Yeah. And it's not like this one is particularly short. It's two hours and 10 minutes, but that is the shortest movie in the series. And you can really feel it because there are never any slow moments. Mm -hmm. There's never any time to grieve. There's never any time to understand information or when it is it's the bare minimum amount of time needed. Mm -hmm. Harry finds out that he has to die. We get the bare minimum of him hugging Hermione, and that's all we get. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and move on to most iconic lines, and then I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about in <laughs> our Potter Problems section. But Dana, most iconic lines from the last film of this eight-film saga. Yeah, I just have two for this movie because there isn't a lot of dialogue. Um, <laughs> the first is um, for all this time, always. Yep, that's one of mine. And even just the word always, I think, kind of emerged. That's what I have, um, just always. As the sort of um, metonym for Snape being good and Snape, Snape's love for Lily being this kind of driving force um, for you know, his role in the series. And, you know, I do think that it is pretty creepy. Um, <laughs> Snape's obsession with Lily. I think that we're sort of meant to understand that this is kind of romantic, that he's still 
obsessed with her, I find it really kind of unsettling. Dude, get over it. <laughs> um, yeah, like it, you were in high school. I like it's it is sad that she died. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I kind of am like you're a grown man. Um, you need to kind of figure this out. And of course, you already mentioned it, but I think one of the most iconic lines of the whole series is "Not my daughter, you bitch." Um, this is one of the only times I think we get like a, like an actual swear word um, yeah. in one of these movies. I I think you sort of kind of alluded to this earlier. I think that this would have had a lot more punch in the movie if the scene of um, Bellatrix and Molly fighting had been a little extended. And yes. if we got the context that Bellatrix killed Fred, which I don't think that we learned in the movie, we see that Fred is dead, but I, we don't see him die. But I'm pretty sure that Bellatrix is the one who killed him. Um, also, I think that during this scene, when Molly says this to Beltrix, I think she throws an Avada Kedav. Um, I'm not sure because I think that Beltrix ultimately dies from her own kind of rebound, but I think I saw a little green stream coming from Molly's wand. Yeah. So, so if so, I stan Queen Molly for being the only person on our <laughs> team to throw an AK. And that's all I got. How about you? Yeah, um, both of those are on my most iconic lines. The the always scene is quite good. I will say it's kind of funny that Snape was able to make such a cinematic and well-edited collection of memories for Harry. <laughs> it's it's very professional for him to Yeah, he sat around in an iMovie for a while. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you kind of code for that via via tear duct, but um, it's, it's, it's a relatively good scene, I think. Um, and that whole montage does a lot of heavy lifting and it's obviously not going to be as good as the book, but I thought it was pretty solid. Um, also, Not My Daughter, You Bitch, <laughs> great one. Again, though, you're right, way too short in the movie. And it's, it also just pops in. It's it's literally like somebody took that scene and placed it into the Harry and Voldemort scene because somebody was like, we need to have this scene. Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because last night, and I'm sorry if I'm taking something away from and it's something you were going to mention. But after we watched the movie last night, you went back to look at a certain sequence because you were like, I want to see how long someone goes without saying anything. Because there was a whole kind of few minutes where there's just no speaking and it's just cut, 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 cut. And that line actually comes in. I think it's the first line that interrupts basically no one talking for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, I, I recorded it. We can we can talk about that now, I guess, which is more of, I don't even know if it's a nitpick, but I did put it in my nitpick section. It's just that a lot of this movie, things are just happening and nobody's reacting to anything. And there is literally, it's almost three minutes. It's from an hour 43 and 35 seconds to an hour 46 and 28 seconds, where not a single amount of dialogue is spoken. And I think that happens a lot in movies, right? Like that's not in and of itself weird. And certainly movies can be entertaining and um, captivating without dialogue. But all of the stuff happens. Harry and Voldemort fight on two separate times. Ron and Hermione are fighting Nagini two separate times. And Neville wakes up and sees the Sword of Gryffindor all within this time section. And nobody is saying anything to those characters. The characters aren't responding to each other. Nothing. It just feels awkward and limp and unemotional and it's it's super weird yeah and i don't know to what extent if it's edited poorly or if it's just or if the the you know or if there just wasn't anything good that they had shot to put in there you know yeah i i don't know 
Um, going back to my most iconic lines, I just have a couple others. Um, Voldemort saying Harry Potter, the boy who lived, come to die mm-hmm. is badass. Yeah, that is a good one. What a what a way with words that Snake Man has. Um, <laughs> I am interested to know if this scene is tense, if you think Harry's straight up going to die. Yeah. So, um, I mean, knowing that he doesn't die kind of takes away tension from it. And you're just like, OK, well, let's get to the actual mm. confrontation. But I wonder, as a person watching this movie for the first time who has not read the books, is that an effective scene? I, I would be very interested to know. Um, and then the last one, I don't know if this is a good line, but it certainly is iconic. Come on, Tom, let's finish this the way we started. Together. Mm-hmm. Throws himself off the... Yeah. The, and uh, that was in the trailer. Yeah. That yeah. I remember very well. But he calls him Tom, which again is badass yeah um and i don't know it's definitely an iconic line i don't know if it's one Mm -hmm. of my favorites yeah okay dana let's (laughs) we'll try and keep this relatively short because i'm sure there are a lot of people who really love this movie and it's probably not great to hear somebody shit all over it Mm -hmm. but uh let's let's highlight some of these potter problems that we have in this movie and maybe focusing on the ones that are a little less you know meaningless (laughs) yeah Yeah, I think, and we've already touched on some of them, so I won't get into things like, you know, why are, you know, deaths glossed over? Why is the Harry and Jenny relationship so bad? Um, But to to think about things that relate to the, you know, the actual important parts of the plot that don't hold up well, I think that the Snape death particularly is worth pointing out as so abrupt, and I, you know, could handle that. But something that frustrates me is that why does Voldemort choose Snape to not kill directly and instead stun him and have Nagini kill him when it seems important that Voldemort would be the one to AK him because he thinks that Snape is the owner of the Elder Wand and it would therefore be important, I think, for him to be the one to kill Snape. Yeah, this is a massive, what I would argue is a plot hole, Mm -hmm. like a massive, massive misstep. And maybe there's somebody out there that can explain this to us and explain away. But I think the only explanation for this is that J.K. Rowling needs him alive so that he can disseminate the entire Mm -hmm. backstory of Snape and Lily to Harry in his dying breath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense as as we've said, when someone get AK'd, they don't get to have a kind of like last words moment because you just instantaneously die. But while Snape is crying, um, Harry takes a little vial and collects his tears. And that kind of leads to my next one is, so after Snape dies and Harry takes his tears, he goes back in to the building and he sees all of these people who are dead. Like so many of his dear friends, he, see Fred's body, he sees Fred's body, he sees Lupin and Tonks and Lavender's dead and all these people. And so he just like kind of heads on up to the pensieve. And we know that this is ultimately important, what he finds in the pensieve, but he doesn't know what he's going to find. And I'm wondering just like, I don't think it makes sense from Harry's psychology that he would, amidst all this happening, go up and be like, yeah, I'm going to see what was in this pensieve. Do you think that that makes sense? Yeah, I don't understand this either. Like, I don't even understand why he seems sad that Snape is dying. Yeah. Because at this point, all he knows is that Snape has betrayed Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, none of that really made any sense to me. And again, I think this is just for the movie. They needed a reason for him to go up and get all of this backstory that was kind of crammed down our throats here. Mm-hmm. 
And the last the last thing that I'll mention is just surrounding the immediate before and immediate after of Harry's quote unquote death. Um, when Harry finds out basically that he is a horcrux essentially and he has to go die and Hermione and Ron run into him as he's about to go do this and Hermione's like, don't go. And he's like, I have to. And she kind of has an emotional goodbye to him, but it's still pretty. She's like, okay, I guess you have to. And Harry and Ron just don't say bye. Yeah, they like share a glance, but like, what? It's not even meaningful. Like, and I think it, not only is it super emotionally unsatisfying, but plot wise, I think it takes away any credibility to convince a viewer that Harry's death is actually happening or is actually going Mm. to. So I know that this movie was made with the understanding that most of the people going into it were already going to kind of know what happens. So maybe they didn't feel it was that important for us to buy that Harry was going to die. But I think the movie should commit to that, you know? Yeah. yeah, completely agree. And then and then after, when we we know that Harry's not really dead, but no one else really does. And the, the impact of Harry being dead, like, doesn't really hit. Like, people are clearly sad, but... Not, I don't, I don't know. I just, I just don't think that their reactions to when they think Harry is dead are very convincing. Yeah, I, I think they're just kind of stunned at that point because there's been so much loss. But I, I agree that in general, death is not handled particularly well. And I guess we should say that there's no wrong way to grieve, right? You cannot yeah. physically display sorrow and still be sad and stuff. But I think for a medium that is literally about displaying emotions you should probably display some emotions yeah (laughs) Yeah, i just yeah i i completely agree with that i don't think i'm not saying well if you don't you know scream when you find out someone died then you didn't really care about them but i just don't think that for the way that this story is being told it makes sense to not have people react to harry's death yeah yeah that's fair um i'll get some of my nitpicks which i guess are more like bigger than nitpicks because my actual nitpicks are silly like it's weird that there's a michael bay circle shot of <laughs> harry and ron undressing after they get dropped in the lake by the yeah, giant dragon i did also take note of that <laughs> yeah anyways um some some actual criticisms i um i really hate that the f- film series in general started to move away from having people say the spells that they were doing when mm-hmm. they're casting them And I do know that there's a precedent to that in the books that like once you get good enough, Mm -hmm. then you don't really have to say the spell to do the charm that you want. But I I do think it takes away, no pun intended, some of the charm of (laughs) casting the spells and like knowing and kind of trying to figure out what each character is doing at those given moments. Like there's this really cool spell that Kingly uses to kind of freeze frame a guy and then launch him out the window, but he just kind of points his wand at it and it's all special effects. And the special effect is cool, but it would be cool to hear Kingsley say the spell that is doing that. Mm-hmm. And also it would make some of the stuff that I said, like the three minutes of silence, not be a thing because this you would have to have, even if it was occasionally somebody going Avada Kedavra mm-hmm. or Expelliarmus or, or whatever, or like a defense spell or any of these things, I think it just adds a little more life to what is essentially just people pointing sticks at each other. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. That's That's a huge problem that i have with some of the latter films but i saved it for this one because this is the most action-packed one of them all Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i definitely agree with that especially because it's inconsistent in that 
you know, sometimes the same wizards who in theory have the same amount of power, you know, in a, at least a given movie will sometimes be saying the spells and sometimes not. And it's like, I don't get why you would sort of go back and forth between saying them and not saying them. Yeah. The other nitpick that I have is that I think the Deathly Hollows is a terrible name for this set mm-hmm. of movies. Because other than the Elder Wand, the Deathly Hollows have really no impact on the story. Um, the Invisibility Cloak, which nobody acknowledges that Harry has one of the Deathly Hollows, right? Like that is never once implied or stated or anything. So is, is it another Invisibility Cloak? I don't know, whatever. But that has no impact on the plot. Mm-hmm. And then the Resurrection Stone, which I guess is different than the Sorcerer's Stone because it's inside the Snitch, which I actually completely forgot about until it happened in the movie. But that also has zero impact on on the story. And mm-hmm. really, the only important thing is the Elder Wand and its commitment to Harry through a technicality. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't quite understand why that's the name of this book in general, but also specifically the name of these movies. Because it, like I feel like a better name would be Harry Potter and the Elder Wand mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. And I think it's interesting that the Deathly Hallows symbol has kind of emerged as like the Harry Potter symbol, yeah. even over the lightning bolt scar, which sort of makes sense because, you know, lightning bolt doesn't isn't exclusive to Harry Potter, whereas the Deathly Hallows symbol kind of is. And I think like a ton of people have like Deathly Hallows tattoos. Right. And it's like, I guess, I mean, I'm not knocking if you have a Deathly Hallows tattoo because like I get that, you know, that's a symbol of Harry Potter and Harry Potter is meaningful to a lot of people. But I guess I don't get why specifically the Deathly Hallows would be a meaningful symbol because it's like if you have the Deathly Hallows, you're a master of death. And so it's like, okay, I don't, I'm not like pursuing that as a goal (laughs) for myself. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The, The last one I'll say is that I really don't like that both Bellatrix and Voldemort kind of turn into paper when they die mm-hmm. instead of just dying. Um, I don't see why that would happen in the context of the movies. And I also feel like when characters, this is another criticism I have with the serious death, but when characters don't die in a materialistic way, in a way that like we understand, right? We don't necessarily understand somebody just dying from an Avada Kedavra, but we do understand a body being there. Mm-hmm. And when there's no body there, it, it makes the death much less realistic and it kind of takes away the realism of the impact to me personally mm-hmm. like when a character just like disappear disappears it's the, it's the same way that like in the mandalorian when mando shoots a guy and he, it just incinerates that's mm-hmm. way less fucked up than if he slit the guy's throat or something right and there was like a mm-hmm. bunch of dead bodies around mando like it's it's so much more innocuous when somebody goes from being in the screen to not being in the screen versus mm-hmm. being in the screen alive and being in the screen dead. And I thought that was a really missed opportunity to like have Voldemort's body be there and show that he's dead. Mm-hmm. Cause also, I mean, he disappears all the time before, yeah. like <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have to take Harry's word for it, which I mean, I don't understand why he would lie, but I just think that there's more of a finality when there's a body there. Mm-hmm. I think that's true, and I think that that's especially true because the significance of all of the Horcruxes being destroyed at this point should mean that Voldemort has been reduced to just being a human at this point. You know, he's sort of yeah, lost. Yeah, like corporeal form. Yeah. yeah, and so I think that it would be particularly impactful to see 
the death of that body um, now that he's been reduced from being this kind of, you know, like demigodish death guy who like had pieces of his soul, you know, all over the world. And now he's just a man and now he just dies. But I think that, yeah, having him just sort of disappear kind of makes it seem like he still has this like special magical um, aspect to his death that ruins the impact of having destroyed all of the Horcruxes. Exactly. Yeah. Perfectly said. Um, so I think with that, we should just move on. Like I said, there's plenty of other silly things that we could talk about and everything like that. But for the sake of time, we're already well over two hours here. I think we'll go ahead and move on just to some of our favorite moments from this film. And then we'll wrap it up with a, a ranking of all of these films. Okay. So uh, Dana, favorite moment, if I force you to have one from this movie. Um, okay. So one moment that I think is fun is the little Gringotts coaster moment um, where they're going in um, with Grip Hook. I think that that's just really fun. Yeah. Do you think that they <laughs> should like capitalize on that in some way? Maybe make some sort of theme park hmm. around Harry Potter? That's an amazing idea. I should, should I should get in touch that. with Universal Studios. Yeah. Um, just a I, thought. I love um, to watch when Snape pulls his wand on Harry and there's like a full like Oprah audience of them like <gasps> um, like they couldn't have imagined this. And there's just like kind of like some fun like crowd moments like that um, in the movies of just like mass reactions. Yeah. Wait, just really quickly on on that point. I do actually really like that scene, the Snape and Harry confrontation, because when McGonagall steps in front of Harry, you see it on Snape Snape's face that he doesn't want to hurt her. Mm -hmm. You can tell. Where he's like, oh, I can I can disarm Harry. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to kill him. But like, crap. Like, if McGonagall tries to kill me, I have, like, I don't want to yeah. have to kill her. Yeah. And so he flees. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really good. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great point. And again, that speaks to the complexity in the Snape character and in Alan Rickman's um, portrayal of Snape. Um, the, the last one I'll mention, because um, we've already hit on some things, is I, I love the small moment um with Ron and Hermione when Harry disappears on the Marauder's map and Ron's like, well, maybe he's going to the room of requirement. It doesn't show up on the map. You said that last year. And Hermione's like blown away um, <laughs> because I think it's like Ron kind of like finally understanding how to like demonstrate that he cares about Hermione in the way that she understands like yeah. <laughs> someone to value her. And also it goes to show how just like the bars on the floor <laughs> for Ron and for men in general that he's like, I remembered this important thing you said. And her mind is like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those are those are some of mine. How about you? Uh, I just have one other one that we haven't talked about. And in this movie, we finally get to see the dumb Quidditch stadium. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Smarty cheer. burns to the ground. No more Quidditch. With that. Um, let's go ahead and close out by ranking all eight of these Harry Potter films from worst to best, least favorite to favorite, however you want to do it. I don't really care. Um, Dana, let's, we can just go trade entries back and forth. What is your eighth ranked film? So the worst, your least favorite, the least good, whatever it is. So my number eight would be the movie we have just discussed, um, Deathly Hallows part two. Okay. Same with me. Mine is, uh, part two as well. Then I go Order of the Phoenix. How about I you? hope this is not going to be boring. I also went Order <laughs> of the Phoenix. Um, then I went Half-Blood Prince. 
I went Chamber of Secrets. Okay. Um, I have Chamber of Secrets next. And I have Half-Blood Prince. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. So your number four film. Uh, number four, I have Sorcerer's Stone. Deathly Hollows Part One. Um, next, I have Deathly Hollows Part One. And I have Sorcerer's Stone. Um, we're really fun to hang out with. Yeah. Um, next, I have Goblet of Fire. Yep. <laughs> next, and I have Prisoner of Azkaban. Prisoner of Azkaban, yeah. So I don't know what the point of that was. Just I guess we're very similar people. Which is good. So with that very anticlimactic and very much mirroring our thoughts on the last film of the series, a very disappointing ending to that conversation, (laughs) this has been part two of our Harry Potter marathon. Um, With that, we've concluded all the Harry Potter films, unless we want to review Fantastic Beasts. I guess we'll see. That certainly won't be next week, but maybe in the next couple months because nothing is coming out anymore and I need content. But until then, Dana, thank you so much for joining me. Um, is there anything specific you'd like to plug? Um, not really. You know, if you, uh, if you're, if you're listening and you have your own nitpicks, I really like hearing other people's. So, um, tweet back at Mati and let us know what they are. Yeah, please do. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie dash marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing, and any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I am joined by Rosa and Catherine from Latinx Lens to talk about the latest Sofia Coppola film, On the Rocks. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag... But let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah, right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.